there, and welcome to Thank the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm your host, Adam Russell. I'm your host, Ryan Key. And I'm also your host, Nick Anbarian. Hey, Nick. Hi, Nick. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Adam. <laughs> Bill Key. And hello, our very specialist, most specialistest guest yet, in my opinion, on Thank the Maker. You're not wrong. Emily Swallow, actor of The Mandalorian fame. Hi. What's up? We have the armorer in the building. We have a real Star Wars universe actor on the show. <laughs> the armorer is here. Um, Emily, hi. Hi. We have a connection in a way through our mutual friend, Patrick Husinger, who has been on Thank the Maker. We are about the same age and we grew up in the same town and this is the first time we're meeting and I'm very happy about that. So thanks for being here. I am here. too. Thanks for being here. This is Pretty so rad. freaking awesome. It's very rad. <laughs> That's my word. I'm going to get right into it. Ryan, you already mentioned you guys are about the same age, which makes you, Emily, about the same age as me. Cool. I did a little homework, and it turns out the three of us were all born within like a month of each other or something. Check that out. All, we're wow. all December, right? Yeah. I'm the youngest one here. I was uh, 90, class of 97, but I was young for my class. Okay. Adam and I are 98. So. I was born December 8th, 1979. Oh, I was born December 18th, 1979. What's up? I was born December 17th, 1979 at Baptist what? Medical Center in Jacksonville. What hospital were you born in? Do you know? I was born at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. Okay, okay there you go. Okay. Sorry. So that would have been crazy. Well, I was born in 1980, just <laughs> in oh, case okay. we're all. <laughs> Still pretty sweet. Which is relevant to today's episode, maybe. Segue. Yeah, I heard I was in my mother's stomach and I was like, I got to see this movie. I got to be born now. <laughs> <laughs> Let me out of here. <laughs> so the question is, and I'm assuming maybe it's similar to our memories, but what is your first, your earliest Star Wars memory? Well, you know, I, I actually asked my parents about this when I was here because I, I didn't have a recollection of like when I saw any of the movies it I just remember it like being part of the fabric of my childhood like mm -hmm. I had Ewoks and I wanted to be Princess Leia and I remember like those just being these integral pieces of like my my childhood you know imagination playtime but I don't remember when I saw the movies like how old I was and my parents had no recollection so that was super helpful um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I know from a pretty early age, like Princess Leia was my jam and I loved the Ewoks. They were just so cute and cuddly. So <laughs> do you have a vision, even just like a, a room you were in where you had like an Ewok toy in your hand or like you anything? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I don't know what my earliest memory is, but I have a few like images, right? Yeah. I remember being in the backyard with my Ewoks, like in the bushes, because of course, you know, we were on Endor and, and we were keeping it real there and protecting the, <laughs> the yard. <laughs> so they, they played a lot outside. I think they probably got pretty dirty and had some adventures. I remember that. And then I, I just remember like the frustration of not being able to have the Princess Leia cinnamon buns on the side <laughs> of my head. Like I wanted so desperately for my hair to do that. And of course it couldn't because... Who knows what they had to put in place yeah. for it to Hours look of like hair that and for makeup, Carrie right? Fisher. Yeah. <laughs> now I understand. Yeah, there wasn't a YouTube tutorial for that in right. the early 80s. <laughs> I know. Mom, I need you today. All day. Yeah. It would have been entirely different today. I could have, like, 
seen all that had to be added in. And we were just talking about this before the show. I had to get this like I have to do some video stuff that on my own here this week that I have to put out. And so I got one of those like circle cell phone lights and I'm or ring light. things. The and ring I'm, light? and yeah. I'm feeling really like like social media gross about it, about even owning it and having it on my desk right now. We were just talking about how now you that's relevant because you could someone could just go, hey guys, here's how you do Princess Leia buns. Yeah, and there'd be like so many different ways to do it because there'd right. be, I mean, especially right now while we're in quarantine, there'd be the like, do it with I- items that you already have in your household. <laughs> and then there'd be the like, Go to this website and order these extensions, and there'd be so many ways. I was Princess Leia. I knew Hope Princess Leia for Halloween two years ago, so I just got a wig. I I just went the easy route. With the beard, absolutely. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. Princess Leia is tough, but I didn't know she was that that grisly. (laughs) So let's move along. Let's talk about the featured topic of the day. We are here, of course, to talk about Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Mic drop. I think it goes without saying. I can assume that everyone on this call agrees that it is the best Star Wars film, right? There is no debate for me. No debate. Maybe even if it's not a favorite specifically, it's probably the best, right? <laughs> yeah. I think so. We could, I we think could so. say that. Yeah, you could call it the best and have it not be your favorite. That's definitely a thing. Right. That's true. But it's both for me, personally. I did Same. see a tweet the other day that said, The Empire Strikes Back is the only film that all Star Wars fans can agree on is actually a film. <laughs> I oh, thought that was funny. Interesting. <laughs> it's gotten dark out there, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah real dark. Good segue to the opening line of this crawl, though. Yeah, let's do it. Ryan, Bill, William Ryan Key, drop the opening crawl. It is a dark time for the rebellion. Although the Death Star has been destroyed, Imperial troops have driven the rebel forces from their hidden base and pursued them across the galaxy. Evading the dreaded Imperial Starfleet, a group of freedom fighters led by Luke Skywalker has established a new secret base on the remote ice world of Hoth. The evil Lord Darth Vader, obsessed with finding young Skywalker, has dispatched thousands of remote probes into the far reaches of space. That is a damn great crawl. Real good. All the stuff that we problematic things we talked about in the in the prequel crawls, this has zero. There's no like, wait, what? What government official is traveling to where mm-hmm. to solve what dispute? This is just like, yep, there's space droids and Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. It's awesome. All you need to know. We've been reading the past few Disney Plus descriptions because I think it's a cool little synopsis kind of. This one is pretty solid. The rebels scatter after the Empire attacks their base. On ice planet Hoth, Han Solo and Princess Leia are pursued by Imperials, while Luke trains with Jedi Master Yoda. But when Luke battles Darth Vader, he learns the shocking truth of his past. He sure does. That's a movie I want to watch right there. That's some clickbait. Man, I don't really know if there's anyone in the world who doesn't know that Darth is his father. But I feel like for someone who doesn't, that comes dangerously close to <laughs> yeah. like revealing something. That's a pretty something. spoiler yeah. spoiler yep. alert description. Spoilery. Yeah. Close. They're walking the line there. But then again, who doesn't know? Well, Little we kids? do live in clickbait time too. You know, it's so true. it's like everything has to be like invo- like come yeah. watch this cause- because like being in outer space with fantastical creatures and like lasers and stuff isn't enough. Right. <laughs> yeah, but what else am I getting out of it? Yeah, exactly. This is our discussion about m- many of these films. Solo, in particular, with the backlash that Solo gets, we're all just like, mm. wait. So like endless amounts of Star Wars nuggets and Tie Fighters and Star Destroyers and Millennium Falcon and Lando. It's not enough. Wait, you want more? No. I don't get it. Are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
let's get into stolen plans. What have you done with those plans? Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back was released on May 21st, 1980. It was a limited release, just 100 theaters. I found this out recently. The full release didn't come until a few weeks later, June 20th. Tagline, from what I could find, this was the only one, the Star Wars saga continues. I guess they weren't going full on with other taglines at this point, right? That's the one that's like on all the posters. And yeah, there wasn't, yeah. you didn't need 15 different social media. But my, I'm social media hating hard this week. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> I'm going to dial that back. I'm going to rein that in. Rein it in. But you didn't need 15 different promo posts on Instagram. So you could just have one poster with one tagline and that was as solid as the Star Wars saga continues and you're good to go. For real. And at that point, there was nothing bigger than Star Wars. So all you had to do was say, here's another Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> they could have literally written it on a napkin and took a picture and put it on a billboard and it would have been fine. Yeah. Directed by Irvin Kirshner, who was actually a former USC professor of George Lucas. Oh, I didn't know he was his professor. Yeah, I just found that out recently as well. So apparently when he offered, when Lucas offered him the job, he was like, you, why, why do you want me to direct this? Are you, you can pick anybody. You realize that, right? And he's like, no, man, you're, you're my hero. I look up to you. You're the one for this. This is going to be a different story. You're the guy. That's so crazy. epic. Worked out pretty well. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, he was, he was pretty right. <laughs> and we'll, we'll probably get into this later talking about what kind of film this was and how people received it. But Lucas knew that it was going to be a more character-based, more dramatic type of film. And everything Kirshner had done to that point was more dramas. It was about characters and people. It wasn't fantastical stuff. So well, It's also a testament about his producing skills. His- yeah world building whether that's like actually within the story or within the crew and cast of like seeing the whole painting before it's done kind of thing versus like visionary versus like going in and directing the brush strokes you know what i mean to make a really cheesy metaphor so i I think him having that vision of like this is who i want to direct this movie and no one's telling me otherwise is it that's a one of those things where like well that's why these movies are so unbelievable you know I went back and I read the Rolling Stone interview that he did right after the movie came out, and he was pretty humble about it. You know, he was like, people keep telling me that this one is better than the first one, so I guess I made the right choice. But he was like, you know, but it's still my story. Like, this is what I came up with, so everyone wins. And he was, at that point, throwing more and more stuff onto his plate. He was building what became this empire of, you know, the empire of dreams. He was building Lucasfilm. He was building ILM. He had so many other things in the works that he literally couldn't even put in the time necessary to produce and direct and do all that. He was funding it himself. Lots of stuff. But like we said, story by George Lucas, screenplay by Lawrence Kasdan, who had actually just finished writing Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's a great story about this. I just listened to an episode of Script Notes, a podcast I've talked about before. He said that, again, when George offered it to him, he was like, you want me to do this? Like, I'm literally handing you Raiders right now. You haven't even read it. Are you sure? This is Star Wars. And he's like, well, I'll read this tonight. And if I like it, you got the job. If not, I'll, I'll retract my offer. <laughs> <laughs> and Kasdan was even like, oh, God, do I even have the energy for this? Like, super honored and at the same time just worn out. Like, yeah. I've been writing. I've been, you know, hold up forever writing Raiders, so... It's crazy stuff. George Lucas really like had trusted his instincts about people because mm-hmm. I was, yeah. you know, I just worked with Dave Filoni and apparently like when he brought him up for an interview to kind of like be his apprentice, they had never met before or anything. And, and Dave was like so nervous about going up there and he was totally convinced he wasn't going to get this job and didn't even know why he was being considered. And basically he sat down 
And Lucas, like the way he talked to him, he realized like, oh, this job is already mine. And now, <laughs> you know, we're just figuring out like how all of this is going to be worked out. That's incredible to me that he, yeah. yeah, these huge, huge decisions. And he, he seems to just know what he wants. He doesn't really interview per se. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He seems like a dude that is just entirely uncomfortable with the interview process. So yeah. <laughs> wouldn't even want to mess with it regardless. Faster, more intense. Yeah. Or it's probably also like, <laughs> hey, you have the job unless you talk yourself out of it. Yeah. That type of thing. <laughs> Interesting though. And again, I didn't know this until recently. I feel like such a Star Wars noob. I feel almost embarrassed to have a Star Wars podcast learning this much stuff, just researching this episode. But that's why it's fun to have a Star Wars podcast. This is true. Don't let the haters hate, dude. You do you. Thanks, Ryan. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Writing credit also uh, was given to Lee Brackett a screenwriter who was just a rock star in sci-fi leading up to this. She, unfortunately, I guess either during or right before the process of writing this had been diagnosed with lung cancer and died just a couple few weeks or months after submitting the first draft to Lucas. Mm. We should actually do a full or maybe just a one quarter portion episode on this version of the script because there's some really interesting stuff in it. And a lot of the main ideas, even names for planets came from it. So- Oh, wow. That would be awesome. It's pretty dope. This film, of course, stars returning from Star Wars, as it was then known, but A New Hope as we know it now. Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker, Harrison Ford as Han Solo, Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia, Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca, Anthony Daniels as C-3PO, Kenny Baker as R2-D2, Sir Alec Guinness back, I was about to say briefly, but more than I remember when I pictured in my head as Obi-Wan. Yeah, I watched it last night. My rewatch last night was just the best thing but he's, he's got some really prominent moments in this film yeah david prowse as darth vader in the suit james earl jones uncredited as the voice of darth vader emily explain this to us if you have any knowledge of why this could be possible james earl jones is not not even in the end credits it doesn't say voice so voice of it, nothing he's just not same in, with a new hope yeah not on imdb uh, nowhere how is that possible that's bizarre i mean Clearly, the union wasn't up in everyone's grill like it is now. <laughs> there's no way they would get away with that. It's, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's wild. We had talked about it like in a pregame call yesterday, and I was like, well, I'm still going to watch it tonight, so I'll check the credits at the end of the movie. It may just be IMDb, but sure enough, he's not in the credits even. Wow. I, I What's super weird, though, is he is credited in the Christmas special. <laughs> 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 Which is bizarre for two reasons. One, it's the Christmas special. What the f- and two, Christmas special happened before this. Yeah. Well, there's the story, right, about him not wanting credit or not needing credit or whatever it was in Revenge of the Sith for saying no or what, you know, where's Padme? Right. Maybe that was it. He was like, I'm good. I don't want people to know I'm Darth Vader. Maybe it's as simple as that. Producer Kurt just dropped in something in the notes here. Part of the decision was he considered David Prowse's performance inside the Vader costume to be the more defining of the two performances. Oh. Because the voice is so iconic, not wanting to be known wow. as Darth Vader definitively, I guess. Oh, man. That is a Respect. selfless human being. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. They were all like, oh, maybe he doesn't want to be attached to it. Maybe he doesn't. And no, it turns out he's just an amazing he's human. just being go. super humble and magnanimous. That's awesome. He was in a lot of stuff before A New Hope, but nothing like A New Hope. His real... Big stuff didn't start until after Empire. I would say the biggest thing he has after Empire, he was Tulsa Doom in Conan the Barbarian, if you remember oh, nice. that. Oh, yeah. Rad. And then he, it definitely picks up from there. I mean, his 80s career is no secret. New cast to this film, Billy D. Williams is Lando. 
Frank Oz as Yoda, the voice of Yoda and the puppeteer. Jeremy Bullock as Boba Fett. And this is so funny. Again, I just learned this. Nick knew this before. John Ratzenberger, Cliff Clavin from Cheers, was (laughs) Rebel Force Major Derlin, the dude who breaks the news to Leia that they have to close the doors on Hoth for the night. Oh, my God. That's so With the mustache, he walks up. He has almost a British accent kind of in that moment. Yes. That's Cliff Clavin. So funny. So funny. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch it yet again, or at least that scene. <laughs> he was doing uh, autograph signings at Celebration last year, and he just had like a giant banner. And I'm like, Cliff? Cheers? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're in Empire Strikes Back. Nice. That guy is probably putting his great-grandchildren through college going to Comic-Cons. <laughs> Seriously, the whole different discussion, because I've gotten to participate kind of in one Comic-Con, and I just was like playing an after-party acoustic set thing, but I, my buddy that brought me in for it just open my eyes to how they work and how people make money doing them. And dude, it's like a recurring role on Battlestar Galactica. It's like six figure Comic-Con income a year. It's, it's just wild. Sweet. It's, it's a whole it's culture, subculture of people and income. It's nuts. I love it. Two hour and four minute runtime. That includes three minutes added for the special edition. Oh, on top of that. So two hours and seven minutes in the special edition, right? Budget estimated 18 million, 56 million adjusted for inflation not a small budget not what we picture as a star wars budget i would think also may not include the the promo stuff we've kind of found that our our, where we're learning what these budgets are some seem to include all the marketing some do not it's really tough to tell it was also though he funded it without any studios or anything right so it was basically like an independent film just distributed by bizarre. 20th Century Fox. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. He, he bet on himself. So that's my question. Remember, we, we learned that the budget for Phantom Menace was his own money and it was $50 million. But the reported budget for that movie is what, $115 million or something like that? Right. So what's that other $65 million? It's once he had it done, the studio spent all that money to promote it, right? We would assume. Right. Obviously, promotion budgets were way different in 1980 than they were in 1999 even. So tough to say. For sure. But either, either way, 56 mil of your own dough or 18 at the time. That's a commitment to your passion. Yeah, it's a big bet. It grossed 4.9 million opening week or opening weekend rather in the US. It's 15 million adjusted. But like we said earlier, it only opened to 100 theaters the first weekend, so I'm assuming that's what this number represents and we couldn't find a number for the combined yeah. true opening and the soft opening. It seems like everywhere just reports that first soft opening. That's it. That's where you get yeah. your info. But it grossed 290 million total in the U.S. That's almost a billion adjusted. There you go. Kathleen Kennedy would be happy. Kath, <laughs> she would be happy. <laughs> Grossed uh, 547 worldwide, which is 1.7 adjusted. Not as much of a, a ratio there from like U.S. to worldwide as I would have expected. 8.7 on IMDb. 94% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 97% audience score. Highest rated Star Wars film on Rotten Tomatoes. 82 on Metacritic. Well loved across the board. Nominated for Best Art and Set Direction, Best Original Score in the Oscars. It won Best Sound and Special Achievement in Visual Effects. Well-deserved. Lastly, Stolen Plans filmed in Norway, England, and a little bit in San Francisco. Not a ton of locations, but each of the set pieces are, I mean, so massive story-wise. You know, you've got Hoth in Norway, everything in Dagobah was done in a soundstage, Elstree Studios in England. So you've got a bunch of snow, you've got a big set in a soundstage, and then you've got the special effects. In San Francisco, they did all the big explosions and stuff that they shot in the space battles. Iconic stuff. Like, this is the one movie, I think, where you think of, like, the few set pieces as, like, these really unique 
locations that contrast each other, like the kind of thing that Nolan went for in Inception. You know what I mean? Really defining these different parallel stories and these locations. Same thing with Bestman. Emily, how fun was it to shoot in the snow in Norway for however long they did that? (laughs) Are you signing up for that? That would be miserable. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's beautiful, but yeah, when I I was rewatching it this time, I looked that up and I was like, Norway on a glacier? What? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds miserable. All the stories with them having to like commute from the hotel to the set every day and like, uh, it sounds really unfun. Yeah. And I I don't want to step on um, Den of Antiquities, but supposedly the first thing they shot which was, I think, Luke stumbling through the blizzard as he was kind of coming out of the cave. Mm-hmm. They shot out the back door of the hotel because there was literally a blizzard. <laughs> Amazing. And they, they were like a day behind, so they're like, it, we'll just open the door and go do it. That's awesome. All right, let's get into some like first impressions. You mentioned earlier, we're all in the same boat, not being old enough to remember a time before Star Wars. So our usual, where were you the first time you saw it and so on, is not applicable here. Right. For me, it was VHS probably recorded off of HBO. That was my dad's thing back in the day. We didn't own any movies that had the actual cover. It was all blank tapes with shit written on them. Emily, do you remember watching this at home, putting in the tape, anything like that? Yeah, I know that we we had a, a VHS tape of it. I don't remember if it was an original or not. My my dad's thing was to rent the movies and and record them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the TV yeah. Classic blockbuster video move right there. I hope my dad doesn't go to jail because of this. <laughs> yeah, what's the statute of limitations on blockbuster theft? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that was definitely a well-worn tape in our, in our collection. Isn't it funny to say tape right now? Yeah. yeah. They just, they don't look good, man. <laughs> um, I was... I mean, there's no way we saw it in 1980, right? So at some point, three to four years old, when we started watching these movies, I would have been somewhere here in Jacksonville, Florida, on Bent Tree Lane in the house I was born in. And I was just thinking about my dad. You bring that up. Like, I remember as a kid, my dad's thing, when he got that first VCR that didn't do, like, the wavy lines when you press pause, (gasps) it just paused the screen. He was like... Everyone's coming over to my house to see my VCR, you know? Who's on top? I'm waiting to hear somebody say, and maybe it'll happen in this original trilogy, that they watched it on Laserdisc. <laughs> we, we had a Laserdisc player for like two Laserdisc nights. was around? Like the big they, ones? The big, they, like, yeah. uh, They were vinyl size. Yeah. They, they, it was like mid 80. That was like 86, oh, dude, hold 87. Up. I think. And remember, they were going to be the thing. I've never watched it, but check it out. That's there Empire on Laserdisc? Wow. Yeah, I have the whole original trilogy. Do you have a Laserdisc player? No, I need to get one. eBay. But dude, it's a two-disc thing. Side one, side two, side three. That's crazy. Yeah, they were going to be the thing. I wonder why that never took off. I don't know. I know we had to return our Laserdisc player because it didn't take off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about how hard it was to not scratch a CD. Yeah, yeah. And then think about this size, yeah. you know? Having like <laughs> That's a nightmare if you together. got kids. Yeah, yeah. Nick, Uh, I don't remember, obviously, due to age, first time seeing it or anything like that, but I actually was kind of going through. So I do have these awesome photos of my third birthday and I had a Boba Fett cake and all Empire Strikes Back, you know, birthday plates and tablecloth and all that type of stuff. But I was I was thinking about it today and it's my third birthday. That's August 1983. Like Return of the Jedi was out by then. So I'm kind of Mm -hmm. I made up a story in my head today. I'm just like, did my mom? just like not be able to get she wasn't able to get like new return of the jedi stuff she found like cheap on sale empire strikes back stuff that <laughs> on was, like, three years old. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I very clearly have a Darth Vader candle that says three, but everything is fully Empire Strikes Back. It is cool. I, Maybe I, you were already just like super hip because you were like, I don't care about Han <laughs> yeah. Solo. I don't care about yeah. Luke. Boba Fett <laughs> yes. is where yeah. it's at. It's very funny. Well played. Yeah, you were the only three-year-old that was fully anti-Ewok. Yeah. You're like, no, screw that movie, dude. <laughs> That's such for babies. about this Boba Fett guy. Says the actual Mandalorian on the show right now. She's in Boba's corner. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about, since this is such a character-focused film, Let's talk about the characters and kind of where they are, and then we'll get into from a certain point of view, because a lot of a lot of what we talk about is going to be in that. So Luke has become, from the little farm boy turned hero in A New Hope, he's now, I mean, as it says in the opening crawl, leading this rebellion, essentially. Leia's truly the leader, but he's the hero of not just that battle, but of this rebellion. It's interesting, though, because he's more of just this kind of highly gifted and skilled fighter than a proper force user, because he's still kind of a noob. Think about how hard he has to focus to draw that lightsaber from the snow in the cave Mm -hmm. and how much he learns from Yoda later. So he's just like, oh, man, one of these days, you know, I'd love to learn how to speak Spanish or, you know, (laughs) juggle, but I'm just so busy with this rebellion. (laughs) It's like he doesn't even get to become a Jedi until later. It's it's interesting. Well, Leia's like also... We can get into her character development here too, but like she's more of a tactician, obviously, you know, and he's like the general in the field. Yeah. And the first time you hear them call him General Skywalker, it's pretty sweet. No little boy. Yep. Speaking of Leia, again, in the first movie, she's, I mean, obviously she is that like powerful female lead, but she's, she's next level in this. And we see her right away when she's, she's given the briefing before the, the evacuation yeah, in the battle. She's running the joint. Mm-hmm. And she's just calling the running shots, the man. Joint. She's behind the bar. She's on the floor. She's in the office. She knows the safe code. She, she's like, she runs that place. <laughs> she makes a cash drop at the end of the night. Yeah. And she does it like with such calm, cool authority, except in matters concerning Han, which I love. Because mm-hmm. I, I like that she, you know, I, I think there's a lot of Star Wars women who are like this. And one of the things I loved about the armorer is that she commands a lot of respect, but she doesn't have to like scream and holler and stamp her feet to get it. Like it's just a given. Mm-hmm. And there's not mm-hmm. a lot of emotion there. It's about a presence as much as anything. Yeah. I would be pretty nervous to walk into that room with you. I'm just, that's, I, I would be like, <laughs> okay. It's like going down the Wizard of Oz hallway, dude. You're like, well, I don't know what's in there, but. I've heard stories. It's pretty fun. Real quick, Leia, too, to say that I think we're going to get into this in from a certain point of view, but what I love also about her in this film is the juxtaposition of her strength and leadership and her, like, frailty in the presence of Han. Yeah. I love seeing those two things. Speaking of Han, it's interesting. He's, although he's now an actual part of the rebellion, he's a general, and he's a leader. People look up to him or are afraid they're going to get yelled at by him half the time, probably. He's also still really caught up in his own shit. He's trying to bail early on to go pay off Jabba. And then I guess the cool part is what keeps him there. He's like, nope, Leia's in danger. Like she's going out on the Falcon with me. Even though he's trying to leave for selfish reasons, he stays ultimately for selfless reasons that are based in his love for someone. Yeah, just like he came back. Well, I think that he thinks that he's more selfish than he is. And that's what's so great about like later in the movie when we get to meet Lando is you see like, oh, Actually, like in contrast to him, I mean, we've already gotten to see like Han open up a little bit, but then you see this other scoundrel who is truly a scoundrel. You see the real Me Too character <laughs> when we meet Lando. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I, I do love that about Han that he's like, no, you know, I'm I'm totally that's one of the things that's so endearing about him. You see that he really wants to be independent and on his own, but he just loves these people too much. He can't help it. The scoundrel with a heart of gold. Yeah. T shirt. Vader also so much deeper of a character in this, so much more complex. He's starting to emerge from that old school, just big bad, I'm evil because I'm evil kind of character that he's he sort of was in A New Hope. We learn that he is obsessed. I mean, this is in the crawl, right? Obsessed with finding Skywalker. Yes. And there's so much good stuff actually in the the new Marvel comics that tell the story between these films about that motivation and when he finds out. And oh, that's cool. Again, I'm I'm learning a lot of this in very recent past. I'm talking like last week. I don't remember if we covered this when we recorded with uh, the Marvel folks, but there was an actual pretty decent reveal in one of the comics recently where Boba Fett is the one who tells Vader the rebel's last name who blew up the Death Star and he just says Skywalker. Yeah, yeah. That was a pretty cool like little bit of a retcon that they gave Boba Fett like a pretty heavy moment. The quality of the retconning in the new canon material outside of the movies is so good it needs a more generous word than retcon retcon has this like negative connotation but i feel like it's just totally enriching Nick's word mining it's like mining for gold and they're getting it they're finding the gold i mean also i think that's cool i didn't know about that reveal and i think that that makes this no disintegration like singling out boba fett if i'm a writer 30 years later going like, hmm, why did he stop to take that time and single out Boba Fett? So think of that idea. Like, well, that's because Boba Fett told him he got this info as a bounty hunter. He told him he knows he's the one that's going to find him, mm. but he's hiring all these guys because why not just see, you know, he, who knows where he is. But yeah. kind of counting mm-hmm. on Boba Fett to be the one that gets him. Like, you're going to get the job done. You're effective, but this matters to me. Don't fuck it up. Don't kill this guy. Like, they have a relationship now, we know. And then I think that, again, that's gold. Mind gold. We also really start to get some insight, and there's even more in the comics as well as to what the dynamic is really like at the top of the empire as like a a military structure. And then also between the emperor and Vader as Sith master and apprentice. And when we see Vader kneel and say, what is your bidding? My master, we know that the ultimate big bad in the universe isn't. He's number two. He's number two at best. Who does number two work for? (laughs) Um, So, and it's not like he's just taking, you know, the Zoom call and saying like, okay, what's going on? What are we doing today? He kneels before his damn hologram. So it really repositions everything and it's so dope. But now we know as Nick just dropped the knowledge that he knew already that Skywalker was out there and that that kneeling was all a show that at the end of the day, he just wants to get Luke and overthrow the Emperor. Yeah. Which we did a whole, Emily, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it, but we did a whole episode about how they changed the dialogue. In the newer versions in the 90s, they added in actually Ian McDermott acting because the original Emperor in the 80 release is not the Emperor that came to be. Oh, I wondered about that, yeah. In Return of the Jedi, right? It's it's the actual actor who has played him until the end now. So they changed the dialogue and we talked and debated a lot about the dialogue and and we'll get into that, but like about how the idea that Vader knew all along what he wanted to do. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. But we also, I'm gonna try to get through this, but I wanted to make this point. We're seeing him as now number two instead, but we're also seeing him being more ruthless. And then to me, the question is, is he more ruthless because he's embarrassed because it's known that he blew it. The Death Star was destroyed because he f***ed up. And also he's ever more frustrated with Palpatine and he's just, he doesn't have time for ups anymore. Instead of just choking a guy a little bit, you know, with his fingers, like he did in the meeting in a new hope, it's like, 
would you do? Okay. You're dead. Okay. Now you're dead too. You're promoted. Who's next? You know, he's just yeah. not It's around. safe to say he's had a pretty stressful day at the office. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say that as a fear filled workplace. It's like Darth Vader's. What's that book? Like the no good, very terrible, awful, yeah. yes. whatever day. <laughs> Poor Darth. Yeah. Don't bring this dude the wrong thing from Starbucks. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I think there's something to say about this, too, where, I mean, it's evident in this movie a little later on that once Vader finds out that Luke exists, I think Vader's mindset shifts to eliminating the Emperor. He says later on in this movie, and I'm sure we'll get to it, but like they could rule the galaxy as father and son. That's two people and neither of those people are Palpatine. So I think once he finds out his son is alive, Vader's mentality shifts completely of like, all right, new plan. Moving forward, I'm getting my son, and we're going to be Siths. There's only two Siths. Yeah. Palpatine's got to go. And as if he wasn't already enough of an emotional just spin cycle, it's next level, you know, when he learns that because hates Palpatine, wants him gone. Now also he has a kid that he didn't know about. So instead of like everything he hates about Palpatine being about Padme and being the Emperor's whipping boy, that adds to the, you know what I'm saying? It's just like the stakes are even higher and it's even more confusing for him emotionally. Well, and that's such a big thing too, like, because that, that's what we see over and over, what Yoda cautions Luke about, like with getting involved with his emotions. And Vader is like in so deep with his emotions at this point and his anger and his wanting this vengeance. And he's pulled in a lot of directions. I wouldn't want to be Darth yeah. Vader. <laughs> no, nor would I. Would you want to be Gary Vader though? Yeah. Okay. He's Darth's lesser-known brother. That's, it was he was a football player at George Lucas's high school, and that's where he got the name Vader from. <laughs> oh, that poor guy! We're making Gary Vader shirts for the show. We'll send you one. Gary Vader. <laughs> God, I love that. Moving on. A certain point of view. Many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. From a certain point of view, in 1980, this film was shit. <laughs> Some folks thought so. Some people were not on board. This is not dissimilar from The Last Jedi's backlash, it seems. Mm -hmm. So we have a couple quotes here I want to read. This is from the New York Times. Quote, The Empire Strikes Back is not a truly terrible movie. It's a nice movie. It's not, by any means, as nice as Star Wars, A New Hope. It's not as fresh and funny and surprising and witty, but is nice and inoffensive and, in a way, that no one associated with it will be ashamed of. It's also silly. What the f***? <laughs> uh, attending, attending to it is a lot like reading the middle of a comic book. What? Who is this person? I'm so, I can't even get through this. I have um, thoughts. I have thoughts. It is amusing in fitful patches, but you're likely to find more beauty, suspense, discipline, craft, and art when watching a New York Harbor pilot bring the Queen Elizabeth II into her Hudson River berth. Which is what The Empire Strikes Back most reminds me of. It's a big, expensive, time-consuming, essentially mechanical operation. The Empire Strikes Back is about as personal as a Christmas card from a bank. The New York Times. Can we figure (laughs) out who actually wrote this and go to their house like Jay and Silent Bobby kicked their ass? I assume they don't have a career anymore. They got fired (laughs) right after that. Yeah, I was going to say. (laughs) There's another quote we have here, but but whether we read it or not, we don't need to drop more crap out. But I always heard that it was actually the fan base that was more bummed on the movie. 
I heard that, that too. That it was more about, I mean, it has a 96 or whatever on Rotten Tomatoes, but there was no Rotten Tomatoes in 1980. And I think people were more, uh, there were certainly critics out there, as there will be by the, with any sequel, especially in an action film franchise where they talk about it being rehashed and boring and the same tropes and blah, blah, blah. But I think fans went in and, you know, to use just scenes as an example, like the iconic training of Luke versus A New Hope. The yeah. sitting around in Cloud City versus A New Hope. You know, it's like there were all these slow burn character development moments in this film. And I think people went in and they were like, where's the Death Star? Yeah, they wanted space opera mm-hmm. again. Where's Han running down the hallway going, ah! Where Like, there's none of that in the movie. And I think it's aged so well because when you make an amazing film, it's an amazing film. And so now it, you know, it's just, you watch it and, and those character development moments are what give it the magic it has. And I understand, I think why people maybe would have been a little put off by what a different, it was almost a different genre. Like it still had lasers and space battles, but you know what I mean? Like the, the conversational nature of the film compared to a new hope, which was just like information. We're getting you from mm. A to B to C. This was, there were like long pauses living in these moments, deliveries of information that were way more impactful. So I don't know. I think I've always heard that that was sort of the general reaction. And then that there were just a few snobby critics that thought it was just not as good as Star Wars. Do you think they were ticked off that it, you know, because A New Hope ends with this tremendous victory and mm-hmm. this one clearly does not? Yeah. And like that's up for discussion. I would expect fans to be bummed about that, but I, I would expect critics to applaud that. Yeah. So it's weird to not. But they may, yeah. they may have. I mean, when you actually go do research on finding critical acclaim and critical reviews from back then, you can't really find a whole lot. It's not, there's not a huge database of, of it, actually. That guy's name was Vincent Canby. He was 56 years old when he saw that movie. So he was Nick's buddy. You're fired. He was Nick's buddy in the Fire Kathleen Kennedy t-shirt in his 50s <laughs> at, at Celebration. Vincent Canby, come to my office. Uh, yeah. You're fired. <laughs> so anyways, I, I think. Oh, here we go. Kurt's putting in the notes, he was already known for being overly critical of acclaimed films. So he was a hipster. Yeah, he was mm. he was a Total hipster. middle-aged hipster before there were middle-aged hipsters. I bet he— He yeah. led the movement, led the revolution. He's 85-ish when, when the man bun started, and he was like, damn it, I don't have enough hair left to get one of those. <laughs> Anyways, I, I think the idea is that I've always heard that fans were more bummed, and it, to- it actually tracks to me why. It was such a shift. Yeah. And the favorite character is frozen in carbonite, and, and who knows if he's even alive. Like, Well, and Luke, who is like the golden boy, the yeah, hero, he's, he's basically like gives up at the end. Yep, he yep. throws in the towel. Yeah, he gets his ass kicked, hand cut off. Yeah, he's the Luke of Octo many years later. He's just resigned. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's definitely a different character than the start of the movie where he was kind of like, you know what? I've got these powers and I'm not on I Tatooine anymore. And I'm, I got this. But I think everyone's come around. It's not, it's not like that hate lasted you know yeah i did just have a thought i would guess knowing that part of the appeal of a new hope of star wars when it came out was that it wasn't the vibe of what we had kind of leading up to that a lot of movies through the 70s there were these dark anti-hero not happy ending not space opera vibe movies so lucas brought that back for people and brought them hope Mm. right yeah Mm. so for this to flip and kind of go back to that in a way right was probably a, a jarring experience for people I'm going to read one little bit from this other quote. I won't read the whole thing. (laughs) But this dude, I'm assuming it's a dude from uh, Time Out You. The second to last sentence is, with a goddamn Muppet as its spiritual guide, Star Wars Episode Five is an impressive indulgence in Hollywood style for the TV generation. Wow. Yoda's a goddamn Muppet, according to this fellow. 
That's a quote. It's pretty brutal. I mean, he he was he was a, a very close cousin to it because <laughs> yeah. Frank Oz did the Muppets, right? Yeah, Wasn't yeah. he Miss yep. Piggy? Yeah. So he's yeah. from the same family, oh. same lineage, same gene pool. The weird thing to me about this is puppets and things like that, they were standard. They were in movies back then. We didn't have CG at that point. So if anything, the Muppet, I think, is weird to kids now who look back and are like, "What? Is, what is, this is weird. What is this well, thing? I don't understand the abil- like the inability of people like this to separate their desire to watch, you know, at that time, to watch The Godfather or Taxi Driver and also be able to enjoy The Empire Strikes Back. Like, why does it have to be one or the other? You know what I mean? Why, yeah. why does it right. have to be these, what will always be, you know, the, the Academy Award-winning cinematic achievements versus these culture-defining, super cool adventure movies? Like, why can't you watch them both and enjoy them both? You just, this is early, early Twitter is what this is. Just, I'm going to find something yeah. to talk shit about. <laughs> All right, let's talk about less depressing stuff. <laughs> We've kind of evolved from a certain point of view to include our own personal gripes and other people's gripes and do our best to reconcile things that maybe don't make sense to us or, or don't quite fit or to just fully champion what we think is a perfectly reasonable explanation for something that other people are bummed about. This is a little one. I think I know how to reconcile it, and I think there is an official retconning-ish of this. Obi-Wan referring to Yoda when he comes to Luke in the snow. Luke's about to die. <laughs> Instead of, like, helping him through the Force, he's just like, I know you're about to die, but you got to go see this dude, all right? Peace. <laughs> he says, go to the Dagobah system, and there you'll learn from Yoda, the Jedi Master who instructed me. Bad beat for our boy Qui-Gon Jinn. <laughs> right there. I mean, do you take it farther than Leia in Return of the Jedi having a memory of her mother? That it's just like, well, uh, they came out later and oops. That's a big oops. Right. But, I mean, we can say that. But the idea here is to actually reconcile this and give it a real explanation. I have one. What do you guys think? How can we make this make sense? Uh, I mean, I would just say from a certain point of view, I mean, Yoda was Obi-Wan's maybe not instructor or master, but he was above him for two movies yeah you know and that checks out to me i guess i would say he was still a teacher yeah you know maybe he was the only one like taking new students <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which isn't entirely true because he was pretty skeptical about luke but maybe you know he called them both up and yoda was like sure i'll give him a chance yeah. and-, and then his schedule just got really full he had to hand him off to qui-gon he's like look man got a lot of clients right now can you yeah. take this kid <laughs> business is booming <laughs> I think the idea that Yoda was just like the head of the council, what we, you know, in the prequels, as we learn and see him is just, he, of course he instructed him in many, many ways. Like what would the line have been? Otherwise you will go to the Dagobah system where you will learn from Yoda, the Jedi master who was the head of the council when I was being trained by another Jedi master named Qui-Gon Jinn. (laughs) Doesn't roll off the tongue the same way. It's a lot to keep track of when you're dying in the snow. It's it's too much information. Dumb it down, bro. Help me out. I think the official explanation for this or maybe this is just my interpretation, is that Yoda always trained with the younglings, like we mm. see him do in episode two. You're smart. So Obi-Wan would have been there as a youngling before he got an official master. I like it. Before he became a Padawan. Yeah, he was like your kindergarten teacher that you just loved. You know, you just... Good morning, Master Yoda! You know what? I love that even more, thinking about the Mandalorian, and now we have 
I'm officially not supposed to call him Baby Yoda. I'm supposed to call him the child. Yes. But I think Disney has accepted that like that that ship has sailed. We tried that we tried to do the same. We try to do the same and fail. But I mean he is a foundling, so he is like he is a youngling. And how crazy is that that we have our Yoda who trains the younglings and then we go to the Mandalorian and we have a Yoda yeah. who is a youngling. Yeah. And who's gonna train him? Who, I have goosebumps. Yeah, this uh, that's, is a that's whole, another, that's another you, podcast. Will you come back for another episode when we get into all that stuff so we can talk about that? Yeah. Because we're dying to know. While we're on Yoda, there's been some dispute. People really just confused and irritated by this. But I think, Nick, you have an official explanation. I do. How long does Luke actually train with Yoda? Because it seems like he just spends a weekend <laughs> there and all of a sudden now he's a badass Jedi. <laughs> Well, uh, there are planets, and I guess the examples of planets are Dagobah and Mortis, where time moves a little differently, and that's uh, time dilation. Yeah, that that's a quote confirmed by Pablo Hidalgo. So there's no reason not to believe that. So uh, nope. you no. know, I'm, I'm sure they weren't thinking about that when they were filming this movie, but that's the explanation there. He was there a little bit longer than we all think. Well, Pablo walked into Kath's office and said, "Hey, I have an idea for this thing of why." Then they were like, "Yep." retcon that that's it that's why write it up pablo answered question answered they're just close to a black hole like an interstellar just time moves slower the gravity of the force in that area slows her down i was paying really close attention to all this last night when i was watching the film the whole timeline issue because it's not just how long does luke train the gripe is luke's training and han and leia are on this other thing and how many days are passing and then they all meet up at the same time and none of it bothered me yeah. at all. I was watching the film like, why do you have to pick that apart to just say, well, he's wearing the same clothes, so it's the same day in Dagobah or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. every <laughs> right. single one of those training things could have been weeks apart. There's no reason, especially in a movie um, about a galaxy far, far away, that there can't be an explanation for time running differently and stuff like that. So it's really that. cool that— Yeah, or just stop trying to make sense of a yeah. space thing. You know, like just like it. Yeah. Just enjoy it. It's weird yeah. where people try to insert logic. Yeah. And the other things that like yeah. they completely overlook. Yeah. It's like, well, everything else makes sense. You know, of course right. there's a Yoda. Of course he lifted right. that spaceship out of that bog. Yeah. No problem yeah, with that. that. But how sense. long was he there? Really, though? <laughs> oh, God. I need receipts. All right. Um, the dark side cave. So, this is a question that I've had for a long time, but I've never really thought about it for some reason. What would have happened? If Luke had not brought his weapons, Luke says, what's in there? And Yoda says, only what you take with you. The interpretation is that because of all the stuff that Luke's going through in his growth, in addition to needing to learn about his lineage, that's why he has that fight, that confrontation there, because he can't go in as a true Jedi. He has to go in with weapons. He's still afraid. He's still working on emotion, right? So what would have happened if he hadn't taken his weapons in? He still would have needed to learn about Vader, right? Maybe we would have seen Anakin and Padme, you know? I mean, this is a huge what if you've just dropped on us all, brother. Yeah, it's not like a deal breaker <laughs> thing, but it just hit me today and it, it's really interesting. Like to if think he about. was emotionally stable enough to enter there without his weapons and not be afraid, yeah. would he have seen his lineage in a different way? Right. And instead of cutting off his own head in, in, a, in a metaphor of you're the exactly. offspring of this evil bastard, would he have seen his parents in a different way? You know, would, would he have seen the scene where Padme tells him that she's pregnant with him? 
But I, I don't know. That's that's a great question to ponder. But well, I think I know one answer is that it would have been really boring. <laughs> I was just gonna say. <laughs> I was just gonna say the idea yeah. is that he wasn't ready. We don't want an emotionally stable Luke. No. I mean, <laughs> no. one of the things that I, I'm just so into with the Star Wars stuff in my adult life now, and then working with and talking with John Favreau about it with the the Mandalorian is no big deal. Um, yeah, you know that guy. <laughs> he really makes you feel that way, though. He's just like. So accessible. But the, how how much George Lucas drew from the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell and all of that. And, like, that's an integral part of his journey. He has to have those demons. He, he has to think that he's ready before he is. Yeah. And then he has to fight with that side of himself that he doesn't want to acknowledge. I also just go back to my original comment that it would have been really boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, mean, I think he has to bring his weapon because he's bringing fear in. So if you're mm-hmm. scared, you're going to bring your weapon, you know? Yeah. I'm going to make one personal gripe. I mentioned this in another episode, and this will conflict with how other people feel for sure. This is also in support of some of the cringy dialogue in the prequels. <laughs> this original trilogy is not without cringy dialogue. Here, here. Because to me, the Nerf Herder line, that whole exchange right there, is cringe city, dude. <laughs> I think it's really corny, and I always watched it even as a little kid, and I was like, oh, that's weird. Why do they say that? Yeah. <laughs> even though it's now fun and you know endearing, and a band named themselves Nerf Herder. It's like a, it's a thing. <laughs> I just never thought it was good. What do you guys think? I think it falls into that category of you can write this stuff, but you can't say it. <laughs> the only, the, you know, the <laughs> thing that they all said when they were auditioning for the film in the first place for A New Hope. Like, what are we talking about? That's one of those ones where I think Kasdan, even as amazing of a screenwriter as he is, was like reaching to be like, I want to make a space joke, you know, <laughs> and it just didn't land. Well, more like he's trying, she has to insult him, but she can't use earth curse words, right? Yeah, but they use, uh, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, then I'll see you in hell. Why not? I don't get it. I also kind of like, I, I mean, I agree with that, but I love the cringeworthiness of it because it just makes that, that, that conflict that they're having with their feelings like so much. I love that it's so awkward Yeah, and that, you know, they're really good at like being badass and like getting through these battles and making shit happen, but then when it comes to these emotions, like, they're idiots. They're such idiots. Yeah. I love that. That's a great point. That's a great point. I think, I think too, I don't know if this is unpopular opinion or a hot take or whatever, I think that there's a lot of comedy that doesn't come off well in all three of these movies. You're right. I think that there's, like, editing that doesn't let jokes land uh i think there's physicality that is like again with editing that just doesn't you don't have this like marvel and disney-esque like talent at this point to to have editing and better jokes i think there's a lot of stuff that are meant to be jokes that just don't land in all three of the original trilogy movies but 40 years of nostalgia makes it all right yeah where we instead as adults criticize every little detail about the new stuff ding 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 (laughs) correct But, I mean, also, there's some great, really witty, really well-timed comedic stuff in this. Because Kazan is a funny dude. and He's a a great comedic writer. I think my favorite—I'm not going to do it until we get into quotes and favorite stuff. But my favorite, like, adult-worthy Star Wars joke is in this film. And and it's funny because every time I see it, I'm like, man, I would have never known what he was saying there as a child. But I certainly know now. So we'll get to that. But I agree with you. (laughs) We might mention it right now because I want to talk about some things that haven't aged all that well. (laughs) I guess. Okay. So I'm about to dig myself a hole then. Going back to um, Han and Lando being a little creepy. (laughs) 
not exactly the most woke dudes in the galactic dating pool. <laughs> I'm thinking of not as much the Hoth scene in the South Passage or whatever, but really in the uh, in the asteroid in the worm's guts when Leia's trying to fix the thing and Han approaches her and he really kind of corners her there and then they kiss. <laughs> it's a little predatory. We could make comments, but Emily, you being a woman, please give us your perspective on this. I know it's it's 40 years again of nostalgia, so it's hard to look at objectively now, but give us your insight. Yeah, I definitely, when I was watching it again the other night, there were a couple of times when I was like, oh, don't be such a jerk. Come on. It is a a bit much. And I feel like the nostalgia kind of protects it. But yeah, I mean, it's that thing that now we talk so much about, about like how so many things in movies and these like romantic comedies and stuff. And we're like, oh my gosh, that's so sweet. In reality, it's like, no, that's stalking. Yeah, right. (laughs) We always say like, would wedding crashers come out in 2020? Nope. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's relying a lot on just trusting, I guess, that these two people really do love each other and they like, they just need to be together. So I guess we're supposed to excuse the really not cool ways that, some of that happens, but I definitely, this time watching it, I was a little bit like, oh, come on. (laughs) The one thing that does support what you're saying about, we know that these two are in love, even though neither of them will fully just say it point blank. I mean, Han does say when they're trying to leave Hoth and he stops her in the hallway and he's like, it's because of the way you feel about me, basically. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about feelings before just trying to come in hot and heavy with the kiss, at least. That doesn't make him any less creepy cornering her in there. But but I think I think what the goal of that scene, whether executed properly or poorly, was, as I think I mentioned earlier, the idea that we see Leia as such a strong, independent, badass leader from the first second we see her on screen in this film. The idea was we have to show her how vulnerable she is in the presence of Han because of her feelings and how she may actually let her guard down finally. And I think getting cornered and like physically pinned might not have been the best way, but I think that's what the writing was designed to do. Am I wrong in thinking that? Like, I think that's what they were trying to achieve was to show her being sort of like vulnerable in the presence of this man who she genuinely, genuinely has these feelings for that. She doesn't know what to do with because she's this badass leader. She's like, I can't be feeling stuff. That's not a thing. And Han has this, like, presence. And it just is unfortunate that in that scene, the presence came off as a little bit like, no, we're doing this, you know? Well, and I think, speaking of that scene before, we also see from him, like, how badly he needs her to say that she loves him Mm -hmm. because he doesn't want to be vulnerable and... He is on that part. It's, totally. Yeah. When he says, I'm a nice man, that's like, that's his soft <laughs> moment. You know, no, you're not. Yeah, that's the best he can do. Right and now. at the end of the scene, and again, this is not, I'm not apologizing for how creepy the, everything leading up to the actual kiss was. But when they actually kiss, you're not watching that movie going like, yeah, she kisses the shit out of him in that scene. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's for real. So <laughs> again, I think it was like, it, it had a direction and a purpose in someone's mind and it wasn't quite executed properly. In hindsight. Yeah. In 80, yeah. I was, it was all good, apparently. I am man. Yeah. I will kiss you. Right. All right. Uh, we got to pick up the pace. There's just too much good stuff in this movie. Yep. Speaking of stuff that age poorly for one reason or another, Luke and Leia's kiss. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. Well, it's still funny now. Here's my question, because I, I've read so many conflicting things about whether or not 
George Lucas had decided they were brother and sister at that point. That maybe because originally didn't Luke yeah. was supposed to have another sister. So maybe they weren't even yeah. supposed to be siblings yet. So that's kind of what I landed on as well. But there's also a chance and there is precedence. Lucas could have very well known that they were going to be brother and sister and thought, oh, this will make it more interesting or edgy or weird. And that'll yeah. be intriguing yeah, or harder and to no figure one will out. Ever guess. Right. Even without knowing that they're brother and sister, there's something awkward about it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's definitely it's like Back to the Future not, style almost. Yeah. It's so clear that she's just doing it like to try to make Han jealous and there's no passion there. Yeah. I think yeah. it's kind of cool about like just how big of a nerd it shows that she is, like how awkward it is. She's like, I'm going to smooch you now. Yeah. You know? Like, it's, and Luke too. Yeah. yeah. Nerd city. All right. I know we just crossed this out, but I have to say it really quick. The color of Han's coat, his parka on Hoth. Whether it's blue or brown, there's this controversy. It's brown. It's brown in real life. On screen, it's blue. (laughs) And what it comes down to, people have put forth all of these potential explanations and so on. All it is, is the color grading of the film. That's it. 35 millimeter film by default looks greener or bluer-ish in the shadows, in the darks. Mm. And then that movie's color graded really blue in the darks. So it looked blue. But then the question is, the philosophical question as like a, a cosplayer or a prop maker enthusiast what color do you make the one for your costume? Because what's mm. the real, the true color, the one we see on screen or the one in the prop? This struggle is real because <laughs> I've had people message me asking me, is the armor like gray, green, or true gray? And like, I had never even thought of it. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Cosplayers don't mess around. They do not. <laughs> Weird almost, I don't know if it's Mandela effect or what, but Kenner put out Han's little figure back in 1980 with the blue jacket. Oh, for sure. I have it right over there. So that has a lot to do with what we think is correct because mm. they incorrectly put out a, an action figure with the, with blue. So last night I watched Empire twice this week. It's brown. It is brown. It's, I think that they went in and, and, and is fixed this it. like the, what was the, the meme with the dress? Blue yeah, and yeah, go- totally. I was just going to say, yeah. it's not yeah. like the meme with the dress because it's color grade. It just is blue to us because that's what it is in the show. Whereas the other one is like subjective, but, but you see it change from shot to shot because the lighting conditions yeah. are different. And True. at that time they didn't have like expert digital color graders that could just like color match and run in the most badass software. It was film. I also read that there was something to do with dry versus wet, too. Mm. I think that that had a little bit to do with it, possibly. Yeah, we're spending a lot of time on a jacket when we have the meat of the film to get to. (laughs) All right, moving on. For over a thousand generations. It is the dark saber. Oh, gosh. It's a Calicori. A Sith Wayfinder. Dark science. Cloning. Secrets only the Sith knew. All right, the Lee Brackett script that we mentioned earlier. The TLDR on that is that it's a lot more space opera. There's a lot more problematic romance stuff. She was a very old school sci-fi writer. Leia's much more of a damsel. Mm. I'm glad all of that didn't make it, although a lot of the cool stuff did. Thank the maker. Luke's car crash, sorry, Mark Hamill's car crash between films that gave him the scar. Some people say that the Wampa scene and that injury was, was kind of added to account for his scar. I think Lucas said otherwise, but there's no like absolute truth to be found out there. Look, Mark Hamill has liked four of my tweets in the last week, so I'll just hit him up. We go way back. We're super tight, and I'll ask him, and then I'll let you know on the next— Yeah, you got his pager number, right? Yeah, I'll let you know the next time we record. He does still use a pager. That's the only way you can get a hold of him on Octo. (laughs) Special edition changes, the 90s special edition changes. We all know about the CG that was added— 
Empire is actually the least added. It's mostly Cloud City. Right. Mm. The stuff in the windows in Cloud City, which I think is a great addition. I think that's really tasteful and helped make that world feel bigger. Also, again, people gave Lucas so much shit for all the CG stuff, but he added some things that were great in this film, like additional shots of the Wampa that made that a much more imposing creature. Yeah, it felt less choppy, right? Yeah, they got the suit. They reshot stuff. They pulled some unused footage and made it a full-blown attack rather than just, you know, a guy with a stick with an arm coming in the, the shot and then Luke falling down. I think the one where he's kind of crouched over and he's eating, he's eating the Tauntaun, I guess, right? Yeah. And he looks up and he's blood dripping. Pretty sure that was a reshoot. There's a breakdown somewhere on YouTube. I'm sure we'll find it and put it in the yeah, show notes. there's a close-up on his face, all the blood and shit all over it that wasn't in the original. Tamura Morrison, who played Django Fett, overdubbed Boba's voice in 02, right, we figured out? So this was a later second special edition, I guess. 04, Kurt says. I'm not bummed at that. I think it's kind of cool. No, it makes sense. I'm bummed for Jeremy Bullock, though. Yeah. That's it, dude. You're out. Unless you can rip the illegal ones on, put them in your Dropbox, so Jeremy Bullock is no longer Boba Fett. That's kind of a dick move. Hey, Tamara Morrison, if you want to get on James Earl Jones' level... There you go. Remo- remove your credit. Call IMDb <laughs> and everybody else. Take your credit out. Yeah. Vader with no helmet. This isn't so much an Easter egg, but just a cool interpretation, I think. Vader with no helmet, we see him in his chamber right before, I forgot which officer walks up, and he's kind of like, ooh, gross, what's going on in there? Kind of disgusted. We see those big, they look like cuts, you know, scars on the back of his head. I always thought it was like, I don't know, maybe a claw or something, or he got caught a lightsaber in the back of the head. It looked like a big laceration scar, but we now know because of the prequels, that's straight melted off flesh from like his hair burning. That's that much brutal. was probably known, don't you think? I mean, in Lucas's mind, like how he became Vader. Do you think he knew that it was due to that fight on some kind of lava planet? The original thing was, and I think this was mentioned in a version of the script, that he fell down a nuclear reactor shaft. Mm. That was the original idea. But cool to know what that really came from. And the Emperor hologram that we talked about, we've got a full episode on that. The Dagobah set, as we mentioned before, was built entirely on a soundstage in the U.K., the whole thing was built five or six feet up in the air so Frank Oz and the whole underworld of puppeteers could be under there popping up to either move stuff around inside Yoda's hut or actually puppet. And something I want to ask you about, Emily, this isn't exactly the same thing, but Patrick mentioned, maybe it was Patrick or Ryan, talking about helmet work and how the way you express emotion or how you connect with the other characters it's such a different equation than being able to look in each other's eyes. Mm-hmm. And in this case, Frank Oz is underneath this raised set. He's got a headset on and Mark Hamill could barely hear him at times. Hamill's acting to a puppet. So if you have any insight on sort of how to make that work and how you get in the zone when you don't have that very human eye to eye connection. Yeah, Cause you guys are going like mask to mask. It's not even like one person in the scene. Yeah. yeah. Well, and we also had a lot of trouble hearing each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we had mics inside our masks to pick up, but especially like in my, in my like armory, it's very dimly lit. I had like basically sunglasses on. I ran into a lot of stuff when I was like left <laughs> to my own devices. You know, we, we sort of like developed the language of the movement just through running the scenes a lot and getting feedback from our directors. That was really important. Because even though, like, like I had done some mask work in theater, but it's different when it's being captured on film and you don't know, like, how big the frame is and right. how much of your body you're getting. So that was really important for us to get feedback from the directors. And I'm assuming that that must have been the case here. 
And then you kind of just have to tap into like your, you know, five-year-old self that can do make-believe. That's <laughs> yeah. part of acting though. That's what, there's actually, there's a great interview and we should link this. We said we were going to on another episode, but we didn't, we blew it. That's my fault. Frank Oz interviews Mark Hamill and they talk about that stuff and how Mark would just get so into the zone running the scene over and over that there were times when Frank wasn't even down there. It was just a stand, the puppet was just leaned up against something or a stick with a little piece of tape on it. But he found that place emotionally and just, he could just run it again and again. Wow. That's so impressive to me. Yeah. Well, I heard that he, I think Lauren Kasdan said that he was basically like in character all the time. Mark Hamill. That's dope. Little tidbit that we talked about on the solo episode, 3PO, when he first plugs in and talks to the Falcon and he says, sir, I don't know where your ship learned to communicate, but it has the most peculiar dialect. That's L3. Again, that's just people now being really wicked smart. That's yeah. so sweet. She's in there. Yeah. Somebody mentioned on another podcast, I fully agree. The two of them would, 3PO and L3 would not get along no. in real life <laughs> as droids just hanging out. Or I don't know, opposites attract. Maybe they would be the first like droid marriage we ever saw. Who knows? There's a little uh, tidbit too. I, I don't remember where I heard it, but like Han's looking for somewhere to basically get the hyperdrive fixed. And did L3 recommend Bespin? Oh. You know, to go back to Lando? Wow. Could be. Love that. Nice. The next one's pretty Mando relevant. Yeah. The Ugnots on Bespin, who are the techs essentially for the, the um, carbonite freezing system. Mm -hmm. They're the refrigerator guys that come to your house to, <laughs> to freeze your hero. We actually spend time with an Ugnut on The Mandalorian. I think it's so sweet. I mean, it's like a testament to how deep Filoni and Favreau got into the original trilogy and all the existing canon and again, enriched the universe by doing I it. was yeah. watching it last night thinking about the fact that we know this now, that that species is in both in the film and the series. Knowing that Quill, you know, Nick Nolte's voice being super raspy like that, like the character. Mm -hmm. And then you, I was watching it thinking about that and the noises that they're all, like obviously he learned how to speak English or whatever the language is they would call it. But in the film, the Ugnaughts have like this super raspy, growly sound like all of them are making all the time. And I think that that mm -hmm. was probably a little bit deliberate, like finding a voice actor who had like a really growly voice yeah. to tie in to the way they sound in Empire. I, I hope they did that anyways. I would not be at all surprised. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely like the original trilogy is, is where they, they drew the most from. And I think that's one of the reasons like it, people loved it. Yep, for sure. No stone left unturned. There's just so much in this movie that, I mean, I think, again, for obvious reasons, because that's what Favreau specifically connects most with is probably the specific film. There's just so much that connects your series to this film and just the very presence, like the introduction of bounty hunters as a thing in the Star Wars universe, establishing that sort of archetype, expanding the universe beyond the hero kid and the big bad and so on. Mm -hmm. The sort of bounty hunter sub-universe is born here, and it's awesome. When Vader has all the bounty hunters lined up and we meet Boba Fett, it's a big deal. Yeah. It's very universe-expanding. found this quote uh, on Sci-Fi Wire. The writer's name is Trey Dean. and said, and I just found this really profound as far as I never thought about it in this context, but yeah, I guess it is that gnarly, this one little scene. And he's referencing, talking before about what a short piece in the film it is, a short scene. He says, it is... In retrospect, shocking just how short it is, considering its lasting legacy on not only the Star Wars franchise, but pop culture at large. In just a hair over 45 seconds, the film establishes an archetype within its universe, propels the plot forward, and introduces the man who will become one of the all-time great icons of the Star Wars saga in Boba Fett. 
Its efficiency as conveying information paired with the immediate allure of the characters it introduces makes for a scene that captures everything that has made the world of Star Wars so alluring for over 40 years now. Wow. Watching it after reading that article, it's crazy to think like, yeah, that scene was like, boom. And really in passing, the first time you see Empire, you don't really care who Boba Fett is yet. You don't, you're just like, yeah, okay, there's these dudes. But then to think of how it's expanded the universe and, Mm -hmm. you know, made this incredible program that you're now starring on. It's like, it's crazy. Very grateful for that. (laughs) Yeah, very grateful for a 45 second scene in a film from 40 years ago. It's wild. Well, I think that part of that must be because this film did focus more on like the relationships between people. And I think that like in that short little scene, there's all these little nuggets of like, you know, between Darth Vader and, and Boba Fett and the way that Darth Vader's soldiers react to the bounty hunters and like there's so much we don't know but we know that like there is some history yeah, there these are bad dudes yeah bad bad yeah. dudes did you do any research whether it's watching this scene and picking up those specific vibes for your character or was it more direction i did i mean i did i was <laughs> man my knowledge of the star wars universe was just so rudimentary until i got on that show and started doing research and realized like how much research I could do. But honestly, like the main thing that had an impact for me and when I talked to uh, Dave and, and John and preparing for it was less about like the specific history, although we had plenty of those questions on set and Dave Filoni is just a walking encyclopedia of Star Wars and knows everything about Mandalorian culture and all that. The main thing that, that John communicated to me was uh, images that he had that he had drawn from the same thing that Lucas drew from in like Kurosawa films and, you know, like Seven Samurai and sort of this, I guess, more of a feeling of it and a mood. A presence, yeah. Yeah, a presence. And that wound up being really helpful. At first I was like, I don't know how this is going to help me with this character, but it helped tremendously. I think partly because of the mask and because there was so much that was important with the movement and in those films, like movement is incredibly important. And then it was in, in researching that that I realized for the first time, like how much Lucas had drawn from that. And like even Darth Vader's helmet, like has a very samurai. For sure. And it, I mean, it's it just it gives me shivers because it goes it goes so deep. It's very cool. It's modern mythology. It's mm-hmm. incredible. I am now painfully aware of your time and how far or not far we are through our show notes. <laughs> um, well, there's two more tie ins with Mandalorian. That'll be quick. Yeah. Another really, really cool retconning, which again, needs a new word, enriching of deep cuts from this movie. Will Rowe Hood evacuating Cloud City, the ice cream man, <laughs> but you know, the orange jumpsuit carrying the damn ice cream maker Oh yeah, that be- has become a meme. You know, you see it celebration, dozens of people dressed up in this costume doing an actual run through the convention center. It's like such a thing. It's amazing to me that this like joke, this in-joke became something very real you are presented with this exact container in this scene which turns out is like a kind of a safe essentially yeah you know he brings the beskar in it and that's so cool to me well and i remember when that uh i think john tweeted a picture of it like while we were still in production and it just Mm -hmm. it broke the internet (laughs) he didn't have an explanation for it or anything it was just like a picture of it a photograph of it the things that star wars people care about i mean he was dropping those bombs left and right throughout the production like the gun same thing yeah the disintegration rifle whatever that was really called that actually came from the christmas special it's never seen on screen in these films right 
that specific gun? No. Oh, no way. I thought we had talked about it being no. in there. I was watching it last night, and I was like, oh, so he just has like a sawed-off shotgun version of the rifle, <laughs> Boba Fett's gun, but I don't think that's what it was. So. No, it's just, uh, I guess he just, he didn't have to pull it out for this job. Yeah, no. But It's in the ship. It's so sweet, and it informs that line right there, that no disintegrations, you know, line with Vader, because he knows he's just out there vaporizing. <laughs> I to yeah. with that. <laughs> so this is fairly well-known, but I guess not in this detail. No one knew about the Luke, I am your father bomb that was going to be dropped, except for Lucas, Irvin Kirshner, Lawrence Kasdan, and then Mark Hamill. It was like day of or something, right? Early, like very close to shooting. Uh, Mark Hamill tweeted, quote, the cast and crew first learned of it when they saw the finished film. When we shot it, Vader's line was, you don't know the truth. Obi-Wan killed your father. Only Irvin Kirshner, George Lucas, and I knew what would be dubbed later. Agony keeping that secret for over a year, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, Hamill. He also had to go, that's not true. That's impossible. Reacting to that line, Obi-Wan killed your father. And it's like, good on you, man, for imagining what he was really going to say. You know what I mean? It's still pretty heavy, though. Like, regardless, that that would have been brutal. Regardless, like, hey, your your mentor actually killed your dad. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Think, God, think about, like, the agony, like he's saying, keeping that a secret to the whole thing and they pulled it off that that shit would never happen now in the internet age how much of that did you have to deal with emily being in the star wars disney lockdown universe like as far as just knowing things and everyone being like what is it what what is the and you can't tell i mean you're probably dealing with uh, some of it right now as we speak (laughs) (laughs) well here's here's the handy thing is that a lot of things that people ask me i genuinely don't know like it was so yeah. it was so my viewing experience was so delicious because there was so much I didn't know, like about the episodes I wasn't in. And I definitely had had the fear of God in me about like leaking any information. I mean, I had to sign so many NDAs. I had to like log into a special Lucasfilms portal to look at my script. And it like kept track of every time I did that. And I hardly took any pictures on set because I was convinced like a Disney drone would come in and (laughs) shoot me. But they did the same thing. I mean, they kept the child a secret, which I think is remarkable in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Because all the stuff that I shot was at the beginning. And the whole time we had to uh, already there had been like pictures leaked and so anytime we were leaving the sound stage we had to put on these like black cloaks and cover any semblance of a costume or anything cool but i i don't know i didn't mind keeping things a secret because i i love when things are revealed when i'm watching it i don't i'm not somebody who likes spoilers in advance so i liked same yeah i liked not being able to say anything because i didn't want to have to try to explain things i just wanted people to see it you watching your show <laughs> yeah. is like me being on this podcast every time nick says anything about star wars I'm like, no way. <laughs> That's a great segue to my next point, which is really cool. <laughs> Wrapping up the Den of Antiquities portion of this right now. Uh, there's a really cool podcast uh, hosted by David Collins called The Soundtrack Show, and he does the most insane in-depth uh, breakdowns of soundtracks, not just for Star Wars, but everything. He actually breaks down specifically the soundtrack of Empire Strikes Back over the course of four podcast episodes for three hours. <laughs> so imagine how in-depth that is. Longer than the actual actual movie but he mentions that george lucas and john williams 
screened the movie and talked about musical direction. And two weeks later, John Williams just shows up with the Imperial March. Like, oh, here's the most iconic uh, thing you've ever heard. I wrote it in two weeks. Here you go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, it's just crazy how much of a genius both George Lucas but also John Williams are. Yeah. Yeah, I think John Williams is one of those guys that sees that stuff in his head. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, yeah. When you're arranging that many instruments, coming from someone who tries to claim that I make music compared to John Williams, you know? It's like, <laughs> I think he goes, okay, Vader, the Empire, all this. And just in his head, he's got, okay, the trumpets are doing this, the cellos are doing this, the double basses are doing this, and it becomes bum, 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 in his head mm-hmm. before he's even notated it, you know? So, yeah, like, it ha- dude, so many moving parts. Like, to be able to do something on that scale for all these films in the timeline that he does them in. Two weeks. Think about how it's long crazy. it takes to finish an album <laughs> in, like, our, like, little rock bands, you know? Like, yeah. where we have pro tools to make our records. Like, this is back when, like, they had to... They had to get it right. We're fucking amateurs, man. This dude is superhuman. <laughs> he had to get up there, conduct that orchestra, and nail it because they were on a timeline and they could, you know, it wasn't a lot of editing they could do and all that stuff. So, yeah, I just, I think he had all these tracks, like all these these pieces, these themes in his mind when he was watching the film and would just be like, hey, George, check it out. And you know George Lucas was like, yes, dude. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I feel like that's further testimony to like how good George Lucas was at identifying kindred spirits. Yep. And the people who really like he could jam with and who. Yeah, his trust in John Williams is, has to be yeah. just unparalleled. I mean, the music makes these films so much of what they are. And he's just like, dude, do your thing, man. You know, it's just awesome. Superhuman. He's an alien. I love you. I know. All right, the list of things that we love in this film is, it's long. And distinguished. Yeah, go back to slider. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to blaze through this, and we'll pause and talk about some of them and then get to the metal ceremony. The Imperial probe droids, right off the beginning, that sound and that whole vibe, I love. And I love that they're in um, yeah. the Clone Wars all over the place. The design basically hasn't changed all through the prequel times. Iconic. So sweet. And they're scary, too, when you're a kid. It's like a, like a wet spider, you know? <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> I know. It's gross. Um, Han and Leia's exchange in the South Passage, right? South Passage? Yeah. It's great. And I love I love their banter. Like, all Me Too stuff aside, their banter is so great. And how Han's, he's always calling her something smart-ass. Like, yes, your highnessness. Your highnessness is the best one. Though. I'm sorry, your worship. It's so good. I know we don't want to hang on all these. But, dude, when she goes, will you please stop calling me that? And she, he goes... I'm sorry, Leia. And she's like, sorry, Leia. Yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost worse. It's like, she's so used to being called just something that hearing her own name is like, Oh, why'd yeah. you call me that? Especially from him. Cause he always calls yeah. her your highnessness, you know? Yeah. That's great. Luke using the force, like we mentioned earlier to pull that lightsaber from the snow. Although it's like, come on, but still, you, you can't do that. It's a great moment. That's it though, man. The score. The all force. Obi-Wan speaking to Luke as a force ghost. Great moment. I wish I was old enough as a human to experience that and wonder, like, like we didn't know about Force Ghosts. We heard Obi-Wan's voice, but to see him there as a vision, I bet people were losing their minds in yeah. the theaters. Yeah. Cutting open the Tauntaun, always thought that was I gross, but awesome. I bad on the, on the outside. outside. And then when Vader's theme drops, the Imperial March, when that comes in, it's, like, so next level. There's no Death Star, there's no, like all the other stuff, but somehow it's just like so leveled up yeah. and the music again. Yeah. But that's superstar destroyer, bro. That's yeah, not true. That doesn't mess around. He, he, it's cool how they did that making, I think watching it last night, I thought this is as impactful as the death star. 
because they show the regular Star Destroyers to scale yeah. with the Super Star Destroyer, <laughs> and it's just as gnarly. It's like yeah. it's as crazy as a moon-sized battle station. Like you're, it's just wild. Yeah. And they made that in 1979 while filming. Like they they just made that a bigature. Can't imagine seeing that in the theater at that time with the other tech yeah. that was out there. You know. So there's just too many good moments, too many great moments in this movie. With the list is so long and ridiculous. So let's just kind of hit our favorites, each of us. Um, we're no matter what, we're going to have the fear of leaving out something great. But it just is what it is. And hey, we'll just keep making more podcast episodes if everybody's cool with that. Yeah, I'll do mine first if you guys don't mind. There's a bunch of quotes, like all of the banter stuff. I feel like just gets filed into this big drawer of great quick one-liners. A bunch of stuff between um, Han and Leia and Han, Leia and three PO. Really fast, witty stuff. But the never tell me the odds quote, which we'll mention in a bit here, that's at the top. I actually love it in context a lot more. Han's response to 3PO saying the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720. You know, that whole like rhythmic kind of delivery. Yeah. And then Han with the never tell me the odds, just the snap like head turn to him is magic, dude quintessential solo yeah you got again you got this like robot this goofy robot that's such an important character in how he contrasts to one of our heroes it's like everything you need to know about both of those characters could be summed up in what they say right there <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure <laughs> <laughs> and then the majority like the meat of my list of favorite quotes and favorite scenes it goes to the, the stuff on dagobah like you said ryan just as a kid it's so sweet that that gives you all the same feelings that other filmmakers have to do a montage to give you. Like, not to talk shit on Rocky, because Rocky Four is like one of my favorite movies of all times. <laughs> this accomplishes all that stuff without having to do a Survivor montage, you know? Yeah, it doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel like Team America montage. Exactly, yeah. I just, I love it for that reason. As a kid, I wanted to be running around the jungle with Yoda on my back, quoting just like biblical level wisdom to me over my shoulder, breathing on my ear. <laughs> Yoda says when they're talking about Luke says something about um, Yoda being a great warrior before he actually knows that he's in front of Yoda and Yoda says great warrior <laughs> wars not make one great <laughs> and he's just he's, he's just like laughing as he said I'm just dropping knowledge on your ass yeah you know? <laughs> yeah he he dropped that knowledge when he was still in upper octave voice like when he still was goofy yeah I never thought about it like that that's cool and then the whole extended scene of Yoda revealing himself or being revealed, you know, his, his voice shifts and he, it's just such an emotional moment. And when Obi-Wan's voice comes in, it's just, again, it's magical. We keep using that word. It's super emotional for me. Then to me, it, it's, it's hard to really choose a favorite again, which is why we're doing this. But the duel between Luke and Vader ending with that moment, Luke is defeated. He's out there on the sort of scaffolding. This two-sentence or three-sentence exchange where Vader says, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. And Luke says, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. We, we always talk about the I am your father line as a singular thing. But that lead up to it, like the tensions building, it's so expertly crafted to build you to that precipice before you drop off the edge of it, which is exactly what Luke does as a character. Man, and, just and from a great performances. standpoint, to tie it back into A New Hope in that, moment where 
Ben tells him about his father. I mean, that's as good as a sequel can get to be able to tie a, a moment mm-hmm. like that back to a moment in the first film and have it be the biggest mic drop in cinematic history, basically. So again, I don't know if I can call an absolute favorite though, but those are my favorites, plural. You don't have to call a favorite anymore. We have a new system here at the office. This is true. Nick, you want to go next? Yeah. I have favorite things that are unexplainable, and I don't play therapist on myself of why I like them. <laughs> the the just carbonite in general. If I see it on a shirt, an item, whatever, Han and carbonite, I love it. Han and carbonite on a yoga mat, I love it. You know, like there's <laughs> yeah. just something that I, I don't, on the surface, it looks cool, and I've liked it since I was a kid it'll go unexplained for the rest of my life. I don't know why, but I just, him being frozen as a moment is cool, but just the actual item of him being in carbonite is amazing because then it carries through to the beginning of return of the Jedi and into the Mandalorian. It's just so cool to me. Yeah. Into then, yeah. Repurposing it as a a form of uh, freezing the bad guys. But uh, I would say two things. People dressed up as stormtroopers that aren't real stormtroopers, like Han and Luke in A New Hope. Love that. If that's a figure or anything like that, where you could take the helmet off, love that. And I love Carbonite just as, I guess it probably goes back to just actual action figures and collecting things. But those are my two favorite things. I know what to get you for Christmas now. Yeah. (laughs) And then I would say just in retrospect, Luke hanging, you know, with one of his hands cut off hanging on that antenna outside of Bespin and and reaching out via the force to Leia I think in retrospect is super heavy and great foreshadowing and then I just put myself in this like new school social media uh mindset where people would be mad about that these days. They're like, yeah. oh, wait, how does Leia know how to do it? You know, like that's just how, you know, like <laughs> exactly, I, I yeah. put myself in that mindset of like what people would be mad about now if they didn't have this nostalgic connection. And I think that that would be one of them. And people like us, we have that kind of inward thought process where we can look at both sides of things and and look at a movie from 1980 and and think of it in like a social media context in 2020 and be like this is no different than whatever you're mad at ray for in the last jedi or whatever you know this is literally no different you just accepted it because you're a kid and if you don't get that like dissonance then i i don't know what to tell you can't help you know i'm not not gonna be able to help you sir yeah yeah yeah. dude I, i don't i don't want to like act all high and mighty or like we're above anyone else but i feel like there's a kind of maturity that comes from looking at this love for something this fandom and these stories a certain way that makes the whole experience better. And I think we're all in that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that we weren't when we were younger, but I, I definitely feel like I've grown and appreciating a scene like this, like you're saying, is something that a few years ago I may not have thought the same about. Yeah. But seeing that the actual gravity of that moment in the context of everything else, it takes a certain perspective that you maybe don't have when you're a kid. And it, it's just heavy twofold because he's reaching out with the force. How is that happening? You know how it's happening because they're related. That's that's like so amazing. Yeah, yeah. they are their own dyad in the force in, in a way. Yeah. I mean, they came, you know, where they came from. I was going to say I noticed something watching the film last night. We've talked a couple times about the sometimes maybe unpleasant shininess of the prequel and sequel trilogies. 
three PO going through some crazy battle and still looking like he just got an oil bath. You know, it's like yeah, yeah. Uh, that happens quite a bit. And man, I, watching that particular scene last night in Empire, Luke is beat down, and yeah, they let lost. it they let it stay that way on film. He's like Mark Hamill as as an actor in the scene. He looks rough. And yeah. mm-hmm. I, I thought about that in context of like, if that scene, got to be honest, if, if that scene had happened in any of the sequel films, I, I don't I don't think you would have had that same level of grit to the scene. But Vader is much shinier in this and Jedi. This is true. First thing you notice is that shiny ass helmet. That's the first thing you notice <laughs> yeah. when you see him. Anything else, Nick? No, nah, that's it for me. Emily Swallow, how about you? Well, definitely... I love you. I know. And then finding out how that came about. Yeah. Because it wasn't scripted that way. Right. And Adam informed me that Lucas like hated it when he first got it. Yeah. He and didn't he was like worried it. To, go, to go back to what we were saying before about, um, you know, how some of the comedy like could be funnier if they had been edited differently or shot differently. And it really sounds like George Lucas didn't want any, any comedy because he didn't want the audience. He was like, the audience is going to laugh at that. And Kasdan was like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, because right. he just knew it was so right for that character, and I love yeah. that. I and I love that he he trusted that so much because that was a big because because it sounds like Lucas pushed back against it for a while until they had a test audience. Yeah, yeah. Thank God Lucas wasn't on set while they were shooting that scene. I guess yeah, right. right? <laughs> no one would have their "I love you, I know" pillowcases <laughs> and their hand towels Literally in their guest bathroom bed right now. And like you said about trust with some of the other stuff, the trust between. Kirshner and, and Harrison Ford, because Harrison Ford apparently brought it up first. And then Kirshner was like, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. That makes sense. Because mm-hmm. Harrison Ford famously like wanted to be killed, wanted all, just all, all this stuff. Like he's like, what is this crap? So he was like, no, he wouldn't say I love you too. This yeah. is like a missed opportunity if we don't do this. And Kirshner was like, okay, let's do it. And then they showed it to Lucas and there it is. And it's brilliant. And it's perfect for them. And then another thing that I learned just recently was, uh, you know, we were talking about like, shooting all this stuff on a soundstage and apparently like the place where like Vader and Luke finally fight. I think it was that set that was like, it was too big to fit in the soundstage. So they had to have half of it. And so then every scene had to be shot. They had to do like with the camera facing this way. And then he had to remember like exactly where everybody was and flip it around, like to get all the reactions for everything. Yeah. Wow. And that just blows my mind. And of course I don't have the, the right details to, <laughs> to even correctly <laughs> reference it. But when I read it, <laughs> I thought that was incredible. <laughs> it also just strikes me so much talking about the chemistry between Han and Leia, like how much chemistry there is between, you know, Han and Chewie and thinking about as an actor, like creating that with this, this furry beast. And then, you know, C-3PO and R2-D2 and like all of these creatures that are, we can't relate to like in a human way, but they set up these characters so brilliantly and we love the chemistry that they have. It's like something magical. Yeah. That's cool. I love loving stuff that's not a scene or a quote. Like, you know what I mean? Like loving the idea that you're watching even more than A New Hope. You're watching them build these relationships with creatures and robots in a way that had never been done before. Yeah. There's just like an unteachable, like you said, magical talent and having the eye for what what that needs to be to connect Mm -hmm. with audiences. Like Lucas, again, being famous for not being the most available director of actors emotionally, Mm -hmm. his direction to to Kenny Baker 
worked perfectly to say as R2 inside the thing, just look happy. <laughs> and that's what he did. And it, yeah. we connect with this trash can. Yeah. 40 years later in The Last Jedi, R2 plays the little hologram of Leia and I start crying over this trash can droid playing a crappy movie <laughs> because these people made this profound connection happen. Yeah. It's unreal. Anything else, uh, favorite scenes or favorite quotes you want to shout out? I mean, basically everything that Yoda says. Straight I mean, up. like when Luke yeah. says, I don't, I don't believe it. That is why you fail. It's yep. just so profound. <laughs> I know. My most profound out of that, obviously, do or do not, there is no try. Is yeah. the one. But I always go back to that quote, and I've referenced it like 10 times on the podcast already. Difficult to see, always in motion, the future is. Just all of those things he says are biblical. You know what I mean? Like, live your life by them. Poetry. One of the things he says, uh, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. Oh, and he grabs his shoulder with his little paw. Yeah. So good. I just got goosebumps, man. (laughs) My favorite thing about this film, my favorite thing about Star Wars is Yoda and Yoda's teachings and Luke's transformation from bratty, kind of spoiled, unfulfilled kid to wise, learned Jedi master and how much impact Yoda had on that journey. So I never watch Empire Strikes Back without having the training scenes being my favorite part, Mm. even more than the I Am Your Father reveal now. I'm sure it was different long ago for me, but because that's the bomb drop. But all those quotes, Emily, that you mentioned, I don't need to say them again, but that whole sequence of events is is my favorite. And, And just from the moment they meet, I think it's nice to have such a favorite in this film like that, like this theme of Yoda and, and his teachings and stuff so that I don't have to break down every individual little thing that because we could talk about it until tomorrow morning, <laughs> you know? So just Luke and Yoda, man, that, that to me was yeah. one of the biggest departures in this film from A New Hope. It was a risk. It was the scenes are kind of long and they're really about his teachings and things. And it's just it's such a big departure and such a different choice that was made in this film. Versus A New Hope. And I I think it's so profound, too, that like that Yoda really is. I mean, it's no wonder that Luke doesn't think he's a Jedi master when he first meets him. I feel like that's one of the things Star Wars does so, so beautifully is like taking these characters that you think are like really lowly and you have one view of them. And then you realize, oh, actually, you know, Mm -hmm. this weird green guy is the most enlightened being ever in this universe. That's such like an an old time after time used story device you know whether it's like the troll like at the bridge or Mm -hmm. whatever like this along the path this seemingly innocuous little character ends up having this profound impact on the journey or the story yeah and it's executed so well here like we said this puppet this little green thing with a bald guy with glasses with his hand up his butt (laughs) is talking to this guy and he has this profound impact on our entire lives. And I'd sit there and watch it as a 40-year-old man and cry over in this puppet with a guy a hand up his butt. Yeah. You should roll that audio of that voice change because that's really what that's really where it's at. Here we go. Why wish you become Jedi? Hmm? <laughs> Mostly because of my father, I guess. Ah, father? Powerful Jedi was he. <laughs> Powerful Jedi. Oh, come on. How could you know my father? You don't even know who I am. No, I don't even know what I'm doing here. We're wasting our time. I cannot teach him. The boy has no patience. You will learn patience. Hmm. Much anger in him. Like his father. Was I any different when you taught me? 
Yoda's not ready. Yoda? <laughs> I am ready. I... Ben, I, I can be a Jedi. Ben, tell him I'm ready. Ready, are you? What knows you ready? For 800 years have I trained Jedi. My own counsel will I keep on who is to be trained. A Jedi must have the deepest commitment. Hmm? The most serious mind. This one, a long time have I watched. All his life as he looked away to the future, to the horizon. Never his mind on where he was. Hmm? What he was doing. Adventure. Hey, excitement. Hey, Jedi craves not these things. You are reckless. So was I, if you remember. He is too old. Yes, too old to begin the training. But I've learned so much. Yoda's super skeptical right here. The look on his face. He finished what he begins. I won't fail you. I'm not afraid. Here it is. Yeah. You will be. You will be. So good. Ooh. Dude. The, the octave shift from take you to my wheel down to that is so effective. Yeah. It's wild. All right, let's hand out some medals. As you may know, if you're a regular listener, we nominate five favorite scenes and five favorite quotes, and then we take those nominations to our Padawan and Jedi tier patrons to vote. And we've got some winners that are a little surprising here. I don't know what they are, so I'm very excited. For favorite scenes, the nominees are Luke meeting Yoda, which we just listened to. That's a long scene, but I think that all counts, right? The Battle of Hoth. Yoda raising the X-Wing from the swamp. Luke and Vader's duel in Cloud City with the I am your father bomb drop. And then one we picked, I think, because of its emotional significance. Not necessarily, I don't know, we went back and forth on this. Whether or not it's a favorite scene, it's a, it's a shorter moment, but it is significant. Luke hanging from the antenna on Vespin after losing to Vader and then connecting with Leia via the Force. Mm. First time we've ever seen something like that happen. Yeah. I mean, we've had Force ghost stuff, but this is like two living people talking to each other through the Force. It's- so it's interesting to me, and maybe we can make this part of it, if people want to revote after we discuss these scenes, because I think if we <laughs> talked about these and what they mean, the votes might be different. I don't know. Yeah. They're not watching the whole Oscars with the things before the commercials showing us why every movie deserves to win. They just got a list. <laughs> so those are the favorite scenes. Those are the five nominees. All right. I'm ready. All right. Favorite scene, according to Patreon. The duel between Luke and Vader and the I Am Your Father bomb drop is the winner by a slim-ish margin. I think uh, tied for second place, we have Luke and Yoda meeting on Dagobah and the Battle of Hoth. Is it not a winner because it's like still known as literally just one of the greatest moments in cinematic history? Like it's, it's just like the biggest best. No one saw that coming. Plot twist <laughs> of know? all time. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah. Well, and you know, it wouldn't be quite as impactful without that scene between Luke and Yoda. You know, it's because of how much, 
how much is in that reveal, how much like Luke has created this entire story in his head of where he came from and what he's fighting for. And then with this reveal, like his entire universe is scrambled. Why must you become a Jedi? Mostly because of my father, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's like (laughs) my purpose in life is because of my father, I guess. Yeah. And it's such like a teenager, like late adolescent, early 20s thing to say like, uh, probably because of this, I guess, you know, yeah. not at all being able to get your brain around what you're actually saying and what the, the real significance of all this is. Yeah, like I think I decided I wanted to get into theater and acting when I was about six years old because I saw Top Gun and I wanted to be Tom Cruise in a jet. That was Tom Cruise gets to fly jets, I guess. Wow. No, that's funny. It's also the thing like, you know, because up until then, it's been pretty clear for Luke, like what is good and what is evil And now, like, he has to reconcile with the fact that, like, he came from something that he has viewed as pure evil. Like, that's a part of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's Skywalker blood. Brutal. All right. Favorite quotes. First, we have Han Solo. Never tell me the odds. Leia and Han. I love you. I know. Master Yoda. Do. Oh, do not. There is no try. Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda. That boy is our last hope. No. There is another. And then, of course, Darth Vader. No. I am your father. The often misquoted. Yeah, why is that? Luke, I am your father is is what is like the colloquial thing, but he <laughs> says, no, I am your father. Just a collective wrong memory. <laughs> Mandela effect. All right. And the winner is, do or do not, there is no try. My people. 60% of the vote crushed. Wow. I, I mean, I get it, but I am also a You're little surprised. surprised. I'm surprised that it crushed. What did you think it would be? I figured, no, I'm your father would win. Mm. Or at least not be 5%. Holy shit. Yeah, no, I'm your father's (laughs) last. But as quotes go, though, I I mean, that's still just such a remarkable Star Wars quote. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like inspirational. It's something to live by, you know? Yeah, it's the one. It's lasted as a, it's not quoted wrong. You know, it's not people saying, Luke, I am your father. Everyone says it right. Yeah, I guess all four of the others require context this stands alone mm-hmm. and that makes yeah. sense for sure the others live in their scenes this this is just like yoda knowledge for life yeah cool that was rad thanks everyone for voting by the way really fun and if you want to keep voting sign up on patreon let's move on to test bay 94 the major weapons test is imminent test bay 94 you may fire when ready okay Either or, I'm actually going to do three pronunciation ones real quick. We usually just do one, but this is fun. Falcon or Falcon pronunciation? Falcon. Han or Han? Han. AT-AT or AT-AT? AT-AT. Dude, same. It's it's an age thing, maybe. Or we're just right. It's also a correct thing. Or we're right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. um, New or old, so I guess... New and shiny or um, weathered, Beskar armor. Oh, I, I like it weathered. Character, yeah. yeah. Even though you make it, you're okay with it getting beat to shit. That's good. Yeah, because it means people are, are doing their job. <laughs> being yeah, otherwise, you know, you come back in the shop and it's like, dude, 
Have you been on your couch? What? Why do you? I don't need no pansy so ass still? Mandalorians. <laughs> fight again. Coming with the right answers. All right. Fa- favorite things. Favorite bounty hunter. Period in Star Wars. Everywhere. Ah. Well, I mean, I'm biased. Din Djarin. All right. Solid answer. I, yeah. I got a personal relationship with him. <laughs> but Boba Fett's still like Solid. the coolest, I think. Also, if you pick a different bounty hunter, he might have a problem with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Disintegrated. Kurt here, yeah. producer Kurt on the call, has a super dope, super accurate um, Boba Fett costume. Ooh. Very nice. Go put it on right Are there now. there pictures somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put it on. <laughs> I'll be back in an hour and a half. Dude, the visual of me in the parking lot at the convention center helping him put that damn thing on is <laughs> funniest. You know, I have an armor or helmet that a fan made me. No way. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm assuming you don't get to keep the one that you wear on the No. <laughs> <laughs> That's cruel and unjust. I mean, they put a lot of money into it. We always like to think that that Mark Hamill was out just at every disco in the 70s in that yellow jacket he wore at the yeah. end of A New Hope. But we don't now we know that he didn't get to keep the jacket. <laughs> yeah. I mean, times are different now, you know? Yeah, Maybe yeah. he did. True. Yeah. The amount of cocaine in like the crevices of the ribbing on that coat. <laughs> just, uh, okay. <laughs> From your perspective, this this makes it different <laughs> and extra okay. funny. Okay. So I don't I don't know how you feel about the convention vibe, the convention circuit. Would you rather go to every Star Wars celebration in the future forever? You have these amazing experiences every year of your life, and it's just great times. But you have to wear the same crappy store-bought Star Trek costume. <laughs> You're doing your signings and your photo ops and everything in this like Kmart Star Trek costume. Or you only get to go to three more total period in your life. But you get your full costume. You get to actually take it home this time. You get to keep that. I'm going to take quality over quantity. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to make those three count. I love that. That's I love sweet. That. I don't, I don't want to be the guy in the Star Trek costume. I mean, no. It's a really tough, that's a tough no. call. It would change the whole thing. It, <laughs> w- a, it wouldn't be. That's a tough call. I would be a target. <laughs> as much as I love Star Trek, that would be a brutal experience. <laughs> You'd have to. You'd yeah. be like. You'd be like. No, guys. I did this podcast this one time, and they just they just made a rule. And no, no, no. I, I have to, just, I have it's to ironic. Live by it. It's I ironic. I didn't know guys, it was really it. gonna happen, but it did. <laughs> <laughs> rules are rules. Yeah. Oh, great. All right, let's wrap up. I guess there's not much you can tell us about what you have coming up, but anything cool that you can discuss, new in your life in general, doesn't even have to be Star Wars updates on your personal stuff. Stuff you're working on. Like, are you working on anything other than? Yeah. Mandalorian. Everything's on hold right now. Yeah. I mean, speaking of conventions, like I was supposed to do a whole lot of conventions this year and um, those are definitely on hold for a while. Uh, So I don't know when that's going to pick back up again. Yeah. You were Um, supposed to be here in St. Louis, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Wizard World uh, canceled. Oh, yeah. Wizard World. Bum out. And I, I have to say, like, I... You know, I'd been doing conventions already because of Supernatural, this TV show that I was on. And those fans are lovely and passionate. And and it over, you know, overall is usually like a really positive experience. But there is so much joy in the Star Wars fandom and just pure like happiness at, at being at the conventions and at doing the cosplay and meeting everyone. And it's like a whole other level. And it's I just feel so lucky I've loved getting to do those. So I, I hope that they come back again. Other than that, I was an entirely different thing, like just more grounded in reality. I was doing this show called Seal Team on CBS and 
we had to stop like as the season finale was being shot. So that's oh, going to wow. cliffhanger. As far as I know, like <laughs> that's the next thing I'll get to work on because we're going to start the next season with this last season finale. But yeah, I really don't know. And I'm kind of okay with that because I, you know, like usually when I'm not working, I'm like hustling to get work. And it's sort of nice right now to have this period of not feeling like I need to hustle because there's no work to really be getting. So everybody else is in the same boat. So it's not. Yeah. No uh, FOMO, I guess. So I've been working on music a little bit more, actually. Nice. That's cool. Welcome to the club. I'm just hanging out in Jacksonville. Yeah. Jacksonville's on the map. Word. Actionville. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Oh, wait. There is one other thing. Yes, please share. Which is Castlevania on Netflix. I do. I'm a, I'm a voice in that, and cool. uh, I think the new season just came out. Hold on, Castlevania exists already. This is a thing. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a great show. What the really awesome. have I been? I played the oh, shit out so of Castlevania good. when I was a kid. I gotta watch this. It's so oh, good. Yeah, You're it's gonna a love thing. it. It's very. It's, it's like adult. The third it's season a, now, I think. Yeah, Damn. it's very adult. It's really yeah. dark. Yeah. There's just too much good stuff out in the world. To why there's like too much good content. Goodness. It's a good problem. And I just, just have also real quick to respond to it's so refreshing to hear that you've had great experiences with Star Wars fandom because we do know how toxic it can be and how some other actors have had terrible experiences. Well, I think that I mean, one of the things that has brought me so much joy is how many people like our age are like messaging me, you know, that I went to high school with or something and say they're like, Hey, I watched The Mandalorian with my kids and like we're all loving it and I love that it is you know, it's a family experience and that spans all these generations. Yeah. And I think that the armorer is like a really special character to a lot of people, especially to girls. And mm-hmm. that I, I I feel really honored to get to play someone like that to kind of represent the the Star Wars universe in that way. And, and then to get to interact with with girls and, and women who are inspired by that is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. We said we were trying going to not make this like an interview, so I don't <laughs> want to do that. But I, I, I have to ask you because you talked about the bushes in your backyard that became the forest moon of Endor. And so Star Wars was in your life. As quick as you can, just generalize your reaction when you got the call that you were going to be in a Favreau, you know, produced, written Star Wars series <laughs> As like an integral character, like what was that moment like? What I I can't even imagine what my brain would feel like. There was so much that I did not know, even when I got it, that I didn't really have a big moment of like, oh wow. Mm. I think until like the show was announced, because I was just so confused, like because yeah. yeah. we we didn't we'd never had a live action Star Wars before. And so, and also, you know, with streaming, I was like, is this going to be something good? I don't know. And I knew like there were really quality people involved with it. Yeah. But like my audition was so low key. It was just with the casting director and a camera. I never met anybody else from the show. And so they were telling me like that this was an important character, but I didn't really like, and I knew I was only in three episodes. So I was like, well, it can't be that big a deal. It really wasn't until I saw the whole series that I was like, oh, <laughs> the armor is actually pretty important. Yeah. yeah. But I'm so glad because I think I would have like pooped my pants. I would have been so nervous. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was able to. I think I said I would have pooped my pants. Those are the words I used. Yeah. <laughs> we don't but it was just so. It was such a new thing for them, too. Like when I got offered the part, like it was so different from the way I'd been offered anything else and the way like the contract, like it didn't, there was so much about it that made it seem to me like, oh, maybe this is just like a really insignificant character and it's cool that I'll like be in the background of some shots. I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
but that's a cool answer, you know? Like, it's cool that it, like, had a slow burn, and then it was, like, the realization of... Uh, oh, I'm so glad. Uh, because also, <laughs> I had already shot all of my stuff when it was announced. Because wow. we oh, shot wow. out of order, and I'd, I'd already done, you know, I was in 1-3 and, and 8, and we did all of that before it was ever announced. It sounds not so dissimilar from the way the original cast experienced Star Wars, thinking about the stuff that they shot, having no idea about the kind of groundbreaking special effects stuff that they were doing in a building somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, with a bunch of miniatures. And yeah. they were all kind of just like this is making weird. fun of what they were doing. And then it hit the screen and it was like, holy, f- this is our movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? I, I knew that what we were doing was good. I really trusted that. And I just think that John Favreau is a, a genius on so many levels and, yeah. and assembled a crew of people like everyone was so smart and so creative, but also so humble. Like there was just such a, everyone was working together. I feel like we, when we were on set, there was always this little like underlying hum of like, oh my gosh, we're doing Star Wars. Like yeah, yeah. that was not lost on anybody. It was just such a, a great community and a, everyone working together so beautifully. So I trusted that, but I had no idea like how it would be received. You never know, especially yeah. with a, a fandom that is so passionate. It is, it is really good to see the, the more you see, like there's the Mando docuseries now, but just any behind the scenes, whether it was for Rise of Skywalker or anything, how much people care about mm-hmm. Star Wars. The people who are involved care about it. They know it's important to people. And I think that that needs to be more, more recognized. prevalent. Yeah, exactly. It needs to be more recognized so the haters are not just kind of yelling into the abyss. Like the people who are yeah. making this care. There's it's not there's no sense of carelessness. Care is much or more than any of yeah. us. Exactly. So like I think that the more that you see that people get to see how much care goes into it and thought goes into it and it's so carefully constructed, I think it would become to a normal human being, really hard to be negative about it, I guess, is my point. Yeah. If, if you know what goes into it and the people care, then why would you be a jerk about it, you know? You're here. Yeah. Well, I will say that um, I think on behalf of all of us, the idea you talk about, like, being on set and going, like, oh, we're doing Star Wars. The fact that you came on the podcast, like, we've all been buzzing all week about, like, uh, we're doing Star Wars in the same way. You know, like, we started this as just, like, hey, let's talk about Star Wars on our laptops and see. And, like, now here we are talking to someone who is pretty big deal in the Star Wars, current Star Wars universe. So um, that feeling of, like, we're doing Star Wars is very real and very palpable yeah. and tangible, you know? Awesome. Well, I mean, I'm I'm so, it, it's, I was so excited to get to do this, talking to Patty about it and sort of, like, surfing through the episodes and I love your guys connection to it. And there's like a gajillion star Wars podcasts out there, but what makes them worth listening to are the ones like this that are so you bring so much ingenuity and creativity and passion to it. It's awesome. I'm blushing. Thank you. I'm blushing. Thank you. <laughs> you can't tell because of my circle light, but I'm sort of red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you didn't have that influencer light on you, we'd really see into your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle, exactly. Hey, all right, let's wrap it up with a quote of the week. This I mentioned earlier from Lawrence Kasdan, who's, again, just such a funny dude. Lawrence Kasdan was on, like I said, an episode of Script Notes talking about the Empire Strikes Back and writing it. And they actually read from his handwritten notes because he, I guess, still to this day, writes 
by hand with pencil on paper. That's just <laughs> That's what so works for him. Cool. So they read from his first draft. So he's telling the story of Lucas sitting down with him alone at Skywalker Ranch, letting him know, you know, he's giving him the, the bomb drop information. And he said, this is me now quoting Kasdan. He said, um, you know, Darth Vader is Luke's father. And I said, no shit. I thought it was just fantastic. And it was clear to me <laughs> that that meant the second movie was going to be very different from the first. And he was not wrong. He was not wrong. Yeah. Initial instinct, like, wow, this is going to be a much more character-driven piece. And that's exactly what it was. I just think about the two of them. They both have these like distinctive, like very like subdued, kind of meek-sounding voices. And yeah. <laughs> having this conversation, it sounds so funny. Like, oh, no shit. <laughs> no, that's great um, Emily thanks for doing this seriously thanks for taking yes. the time oh, it's my pleasure long format podcasting when you ask someone to come do it, it's like are you are you sure you want to sit around <laughs> with us for two and a half hours but thank you so well, it's so, so much, much fun to I mean going down the rabbit hole with this movie and it's a, a blessing and a curse I think to start like reading about these films and, and anything in this universe because there's just so much that's so interesting it's so crazy much. how it just started from that one little idea he had, you know, and what it's become and that you have your show. It's just from where yeah. the origin of it all to, to now is fascinating for sure. I had a, a moment where because there was a day um, that he came to set, George Lucas came to set and he's like holding court and, you know, talking to people. And I just like it blows my mind to think about him looking back now, like having had that idea 40 years ago. But he got so much pushback against trying to make it in the first place and, you know, rallied mm-hmm. and now like. That it's still so relevant and that it's yeah. like all the cool things that, that now we can do in, in making it and that people still want these stories. Like, what's that like to be a genius like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's maybe more relevant. Yeah, it's yeah. modern mythology. It's a beautiful thing and it's, it's something that needs uh, plenty of people. I know you said there's tons of podcasts. There are to- there's so many podcasts, but they we need these things to help like usher in and shepherd like the positivity. And so we get yeah. more, you know, and I think that that's a super important thing. Part of the mission statement. Agreed. For sure. I know we're all looking forward to season two whenever it happens. and. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. Just so cool that you did this. Oh, so my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for giving me a choice on uh, on which movie and that I got to choose like my favorite. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you are our honorary first ever Star Wars actor on the show, so we couldn't do it any other way. If the people want to find you on the internet. Like my my social yeah, stuff. Yeah, what social media accounts and stuff? Yeah, yeah where can we find I'm you? I'm Biggie Swalls on Instagram and Twitter, <laughs> which is B I G E S W A L L Z, because I'm gangsta like that. <laughs> <laughs> that. That's Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Good stuff. If you're looking for the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at Thank the Maker Pod, on Twitter at Thank the Maker One, and most importantly, if you want to support the podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash thankthemakerpod. And as you know now, participate in the medal ceremony. Get involved in those polls. And um, we really appreciate the support. It helps keep this thing up and running. My personal socials, everything is at Adam the Skull. Hey there, everybody. Bill Key here. And uh, you can basically just see me posting all the same stuff that gets posted on the Thank the Maker Instagram on my Instagram <laughs> at William Ryan Key. I'm also on Twitter at William Ryan Key. And all my socials are at Nick Bayside. It's been really a pleasure to have a bunch of you people reach out and chat with me. And I look forward to chatting with a bunch more of you. Again, Emily, thank you for being here. Everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks, Emily. 
Thank you. And until next time, may the force be with you. 